This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Game of Thrones podcast by BaldMove.com. We're the officially unofficial podcast for HBO's Game of Thrones. I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Anthony. And we are continuing on our run of being the officially official podcast for Anthony and I's new book, Gods of Thrones, a book on the religions and and cultures of Westeros and the real-life counterparts and inspiration, and also officially unofficial podcast for George Martin's Fire and Blood Volume 1, a a book of fake history about fake Targaryens. Well, no, real Targaryens. (laughs) they're They're just literary devices. This week, uh, we are actually pleased to have a couple of special guests. We're going to have Kim Renfro on from The Insider. You may be familiar with her spectacular coverage of show, HBO shows such as Westworld and Game of Thrones. Uh, I had her on the podcast a couple times last year, and we're also, as a treat, going to be visited by our officially official artist for Gods of Thrones, who illustrated um, a lot of the, the big-ticket things we wanted him to illustrate, Chase Stone is going to be by to talk about fantasy art. He's a noted illustrator from the world of Ice and Fire. He's done a lot of Magic the Gathering. I'm really, really interested in talking to him. It's going to be cool. But there is a matter of us getting through the final third of Fire and Blood. Kim will be helping us with the, uh, that in a moment. But I also, since you know Anthony's been with us for, for so long now, I wanted to, uh, before, before we kicked you out the door... I wanted to uh, get your kind of impressions on the last third of uh, uh, the last third of the book. Oh, yeah. You know what? No, I'm, hold on. I'm glad hold not on to a second. be kicked out. Oh, go ahead. Hold on a second. I fucked this up because I just I just went right past the the, re- the Amazon review. Okay. Um, uh, before we get to that, though, I want to take a, t- uh, a little bit of time to promote Gods of Gods of Thrones because fire, you know George Martin doesn't doesn't need promotion. Uh, Gods of Thrones needs promotion. Uh, it's still for sale on Amazon in both digital and paperback for, uh, format. It still makes a great stocking stuffer or Christmas tree fortification for your hard to please Game of Thrones fan. If that hard to please fan is yourself, feel free to pull the trigger because I'm 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 pretty sure you'll enjoy it. It's also pretty irreverent, Aaron. You could use it for a book burning if you're into book book burning. It, this would make a, a great option for that, I think. Yeah, yeah. Although you should try reading the book instead of burning it. Uh, that uh, that that note, courtesy of Hen- Henry Ford, Doctor Henry Ford Senior. Very uh, very nice. We we had a, uh, a Sean Connery. It's just a it's fun accent. It's a fun accent to try on and, and strut around. Everyone everyone has a Sean Connery accent. That's that's because you just kind of sh- you square off your ashes and you know give him a slight lisp. Uh, Christopher was one of the persons that graced us with the review on Amazon. Uh, short and sweet because we got a lot of guests. We got we got a lot of material to cut uh, cut through says, uh, this book balances off-kilter humor with rigorous research to create an instantly essential companion text to A Song of Ice and Fire canon. It's also a beautiful book with great visuals and comes preloaded, thoughtful, and entertaining marginalia. 
Mm. I'm not sure if I said that word right. But, no, Martinelli is good. I think he's praising our uh, side footnotes that actually exist within the margin. I love that word, by the way. It actually yeah, sounds I, a little bit dirty, which is why I it like does. It. Like uh, I got the marginalia majora and the marginalia uh, <laughs> minora, but uh, yeah, and, and yeah, our 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 book contains no mere footnotes, uh, not to be trod over by the main text. Uh, the our foot our footnotes are more like the sworn shields to the text. They're there by they're 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 sturdy left and right arms in the margins. I don't know. I I lost my metaphor there as as frequently happens. That's what's nice about writing a book. If you lose the metaphor, you can just be like, okay, keep writing. Oh yeah. I remember what I want to say here. Podcast. Not so lucky. Uh, so yeah, check out gods of thrones. If you have enjoyed this podcast, it's a, it's a mortal lock that you'll like the book. Um, so check it out on Amazon. There's links in the show notes as always of, of where you can buy it. Hey, I want to take a few seconds before we get into meeting the content to uh, tell you what's going on here at baldmove.com because we're preparing to enter our little uh, annual hibernation period. We usually shut down uh, between Christmas and a little bit after New Year's before stuff uh, comes roaring back. And man, it starts early. We got True Detective Season 3 coming up in January, uh, a bunch of stuff. But right now, uh, we are releasing our annual Christmas content. This year, it's themed a very Giamatti Christmas. We're reviewing the Paul Giamatti Christmas movies, All is Bright and Fred Claus, as well as having live watches for both of those. We're doing our extra festive drunken lunches on Fridays. Uh, and we also have the One Man Manger, a eight-part spectacular epic poem involving Paul Giamatti's desperate attempt to secure a last-minute holiday project. Uh, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. Paul Giamatti and uh, Bald Move—he's he's kind of our official mascot at this point. So we decided to embrace it this year as our part of our Christmas celebration. And right now we're also discounting the club annual memberships. If you sign up for a new annual membership, uh, you get 25% off from now until January the 2nd. So check that out. I uh, hope you guys appreciate it. And you also get unlock all the fantastic club content. We've been doing this for like five years now. There's so many cool things we've done. I uh, hope you get a chance to check that out. It's all at baldmove.com. You can't miss it. You'll see a giant Giamatti head. Click on there to either participate if you're a club member or sign up. Uh, okay, let's talk about the final third of the the book. We started with uh, Dying of the Dragons, Rhaenyra Triumphant, which I, if you'll recall from last week, I naively thought that was the end of the Dance of the Dragons. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was actually maybe the midpoint. Yeah, I mean, look, it, this, these things are they die hard. In keeping with the Christmas season, season. That's right. They die. The greatest hard. Christmas movie of all, Die Hard. Yeah. Ha- all right. So tell me, Aaron, did you have to force yourself to finish it, or were you sort of enthralled right through the to the back cover? You know, I. So I was a little bummed with the. Uh, with with the fact that we're still in the dance, because I really don't like. I mean, these are just Targaryens behaving badly. They don't give a shit about the realm. Uh, it's all about who has the better. It's 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 just it's, it's it's a lot of boring and ugly ugly stuff. But I found that as I kept reading, that the characters became like just into telling the story, fleshed out. That I started to like having a a, a slight preference for one or the other. Um, the dragon combat was kind of cool. I also, 
Um, you know, I, I've I've heard about the Dance of Dragons, and I've read some you know material in the world of Ice and Fire, and mm-hmm. be, for, for whatever reason, the narrative never sunk that this was just really a dragon holocaust. The right, the the, the uh, most dragons of note die. Uh, and I think we're there's only two or three left in the land by the time by 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 the time we get to the end of it. Do you have? Because uh, again, I want to save some some space for Kim and Chase. Do you have another point that uh, we should discuss before? Yeah, no, I'm anxious to hear what they say too. There was only one other thing that I wanted to get your take on, and that was uh, Cregan Stark. Ah, yes. And I was the thinking, hour of the wolf. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, he's a really interesting guy. I mean, this this last section was difficult for me to get through, but I thought he was one of the more interesting characters. Mm-hmm. And I was almost thinking about him as sort of an anti-Ned or a bizarro Ned. Because <laughs> w- what do you think about Ned Stark? He's sort of po- forced into being the hand, hand of the king. He he doesn't understand the politics in the South. Right. And he ends up getting c- kind of getting eaten alive down there. Mm-hmm. By contrast, here we have this Creekin Stark, who's the Lord of Winterfell, who basically wa- you know marches down south, and instead of being eaten alive, he he really enters the the scene after the Dance of Dragons is almost over, so everyone's exhausted and their resources are spent, and he kind of just takes over the place. Yeah. And in all of the things that Ned was really weak at, this this Creek and Stark guy looks like he's just he's just the perfect hand of the king for this particular moment in history. Right. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you're right, he is kind of the bizarro the bizarro Ned Stark because he comes you know, Ned came with his household guard, just a handful of dudes. This guy right. has a host of like ten, twenty thousand Northerners, all prepared to die because yeah, this they, is at the dawn. They of, think they're uh, going to die. Yeah, yeah. This is all the dawn of winter, and as he points out, like it's a, it's a, it's a northern tradition that for all the old men, the second sons, the men with with not very many prospects, it essentially mouths the feed. Uh, to to go and you know in, in times of peace they just go out into the the forest to commune with nature and you're understood that they they freeze to death in times of war they make these these fanatical like death <laughs> suicide marches essentially yeah they're basically and, doing population control using warfare in, at, at times yeah their and, own and population so, control. So, so you know, Cregan gets down there, and it's taken him a while to get down there because by the time he gets down there, essentially the the dance of dragons is over. But he's like, "Hey, you got you've got but you've got usurpers and betrayers that haven't been to knee yet. So I'm going to take my Northmen, and we're going to go to High Tower, and we're going to go to uh, we're going to go to uh, the Storms End, and we're going to we're going to kick in some Baratheon ass and some High Tower ass, and we're going to get vengeance for this uh, murdered murdered queen of ours. And the people are like, "Oh, it's going to it's going to be so costly in, in lives, Lord Stark. What will you?" And he's like, "I every one of my men that marched forth with me is dead already." And he kind of explains that kind of badass Northern tradition, and he just can't be bribed. He can't be gainsaid. And un, like you know, if Ned Stark had twenty thousand 
uh, you know, if he had all the mounted car starks and all right. the strength of the last hearth with him, it would have been a completely different uh, situation. But yeah, it's so weird because like, you know, Ned comes down there trying to keep worried about his life and worried about his friend's life. Cregan comes down there. Devil may care. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> so, right. And and this guy Cregan ends up instead of conflicting with the the the, the women of the South. He's a, he ends up marrying one, and then mm-hmm. he has all of these widows in the Reach. Uh, he ends up marrying all of these these men off to these women because mm-hmm. they're they're basically widowed, and here are these men that didn't expect ever to go back north, and there are no resources up there anyway because it's 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 basically death up north. And so you've got this really um in the Riverlands at least you've got this really strong marriage union like in the hundreds uh-huh. between the Tullys and the Starks. Right, which explains, you know, the the, the which it goes a, a long line to explain like you know why the Riverlands are almost like honorary northern northmen by the time yeah. of uh the Baratheon period, as we like to call it, uh, the time of Game of Thrones, which is why Cat would be a natural, you know, a natural fit for at least one of the Stark lords, right? Right, right. Um, so one thing I though, it's like you, you mentioned this, but like at the end of it, when you know Cregan kind of gets beat down by the the reality of the peace, because as he is preparing for war. Uh, all the knees start slowly bending because, you know, he had got there right as they had sent the ravens to kind of sue for terms of peace. And, like, all the the, the peace suing came back and everybody's kind of amenable to it because the whole realm's kind of done with uh, fighting over this stuff. And, uh, you know, he's he then goes to met out the king's justice as far as trying to get justice for who murdered this uh, King Aegon II and who poisoned him. And, I mean, I found that, like, it seems like I'm not sure I agreed with all of his uh, his ways. I'm not sure I agreed with um, all of his investigative techniques and his standards of evidence and his ideas of jurisprudence and all that kind of stuff. And I was kind of like horrified that like you know I kind of like this guy, but he's going to chop off a bunch of heads, and I'm not I'm not even sure that half of them deserve it. Right. Of course, at the end they all declare for the black and like all but out of the hundreds that he people he had slated for death, only a, a, a small handful actually die. Right, um, so was- it says uh, it says that look, if this was a, a southern lord, they might have just sort of dismissed the the plea for the black. But because Cregan was a man of the north, he had high respect and and knew the need of of the Night's Watch. And so, yeah, of course, that's... the first person that was going to get his head chopped off, he declared, "I want to take the black." And then within <laughs> within like moments, a hundred hundreds of people were were asking to take the black. Right. You know, and I think that's interesting because, like, I've always assumed that taking the black was, like, something that you always, like, that was just always an option, you know? But it does feel like the way that was worded, where with Southern Lords, maybe, like, depending on whether they felt like it, they would give you that option or if you wanted to take it, they're like, yeah, but you, you really did me dirty. I'm cutting your head off anyway. I wonder how much Cregan, like, added the cemented to this like uh, well you can always take the black kind of legacy of the yeah uh the night well that we see that we see that with joffrey right eventually you know that was that was supposed to be an option for ned that he would actually go back up north and take the black but uh joffrey wanted to make a point 
you also wonder how how uh, how is it that the how is it that the Night's Watch has fallen so far in like less than three hundred years? Because you know the time of Alisane, like they had some castles that were crumbled, but they you know they had all of the castles garrison, and there's a lot, and they're they're just their ranks swell through all these wars because everybody that yeah. you know doesn't want to lose their head takes the black. They've got I mean, maybe maybe it's that they they. Maybe something happened to their culture where they were unable to just take on. Because, like, by my counts, they have almost a thousand fresh recruits in the last thirty years alone. You know, there's like hundreds of those uh, the, the 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 faith militant that got sent up there, and mm-hmm. I don't know. But they also, I think, then they rebel and they had to be, had that be that ought to be quashed too. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't. I guess it would only take a couple hundred years for an institution like that to diminish. If you lose, <laughs> sure. if you lose support, you know it's not right. like these men are repopulating themselves. They, they've taken an oath to sire no children, right? Yeah, and I'm acting like 300 years is nothing when like our the country we live in isn't 300 years old. So I I, I kind of <laughs> it, I always assumed that the the Night's Watch was you know like right after the long night it's like the the hot ticket. You know everybody's like oh Night's Watch is great they're singing songs about it. But like over the next thousands of years it was slow attrition. But it seems like it's more more of like. Um, you know, some something happened in these last three hundred years that has you know really distracted people and and uh, re- really yeah. take, having them taking their eye off the ball. All it takes is for one king to stop sending people up to the night, night's watch, and these men are going to be gone within a generation. Yeah, that's true. FX is adapting James Clavell's best-selling novel Shogun into a ten-part miniseries this spring. Set in the shogunate period of Japan at the turn of the 15th century, Shogun depicts the rise of a feudal lord to Shogun, as seen through the eyes of a shipwrecked English sailor. It's loosely based on the real-life exploits of William Adams and Tokugawa Ieyasu. Shogun has already been successfully adapted back in 1980 with a widely acclaimed miniseries starring Richard Chamberlain, featuring intricate plots, political scheming, complex characters, and thrilling action. This time, husband and wife team Justin Marks and Rachel Kondo try to recapture the successes of the novel and early adaptations while increasing the levels of historical and cultural accuracy that are often perceived as flaws of this and similar works. Starring Hiroyuki Sonata from The Last Samurai, Mortal Kombat, and John Wick 4, with Cosmo Jarvis of Peaky Blinders, Raised by Wolves, etc., joining the truly massive cast required to bring this complex world to life. Join Aaron and I each week as we deep dive into each episode, uncovering the mysteries, the intrigue, and the glory of Shogun. Shogun premieres on FX Hulu Tuesday, February 27th at the two-part debut. Our podcast will release each Thursday thereafter. Get our Shogun coverage by searching for Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. Commission podcasts are an awesome feature here at Bald Move that allows you, the individual listener, to decide what we talk about for a single podcast. The community loves it because it often leads to fun fan-favorite films and TV shows that we've overlooked getting the coverage they deserve. And we love it because we're constantly exposed to great stuff that's not even on our radar. The way it works is simple. You go to support.baldmove.com and you click on commissions. Then you pay the flat rate for the commission and tell us what two-ish hours of content you'd like us to make podcasts on. 
Then we'll contact you for details, advanced feedback, and any dedications you'd like to make. Then we watch the thing, discuss the thing, turn it into a podcast, and pump it right into your ears. We get consistently great feedback on how much our commissioners love their podcast, and they make great gifts for the dedicated Bald Move fan in your life. And who knows, that dedicated fan could even be you. Treat yourself. Check out support.baldmove.com for more info. Okay, so we got a next. We got we got a couple of uh, interviews, and then we're going to come back uh, and do some feedback, and then we're going to, to wrap this the, this whole thing up. So, so without further ado, we're going to go over to our buddy Kim Renfro to see what she thought of uh, Fire and Blood as a whole in this this last third, and then we'll talk to uh, Chase Stone. So joining me now is Kim Renfro, who you have heard of if you are have been a, if you've been a fan of Bald Move for some time because we had her on a podcast last year a couple times for season seven. She's the senior culture reporter for Insider uh, and has covered Game of Thrones, Westworld, amongst others. Uh, she's responsible for the definitive timeline for what's going on in West uh, on Westworld. If if you're uh, a, a familiar with Reddit or just you know internet investigation period, welcome to the show, uh, Kim. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here with you. Yeah, I uh, I just found out in kind of the process of inviting you onto the podcast is that you coincidentally are also working on a Game of Thrones book. Yeah, and I mean, first of all, congrats on on yours. That's so exciting, and well, thank it's you. cool that we're getting a part two next yeah, year. Thank you. I what, so yours is kind of like trying to take in the whole breadth of the televised world of Game of Thrones and. Um, like, like, it, what, what's the what's the tagline for the book? Uh, we're calling it the unofficial guide to Game of Thrones because it's not um, we're not licensed officially by HBO or anything, right? But I'm I'm kind of doing a chronological behind the scenes look at everything from how the show was first conceived of and created to you know behind the scenes details with the costume, the scores, um all sorts of those kind of like fun stories that I feel like most super fans of the show probably know about, but maybe your average fan has like missed those interviews over the years. And so I'm, I'm compiling interviews that I've myself completed uh, during the course of my reporting on the show, but also pulling from other sources and, you know, all of the panels and entertainment weekly profiles and all those things over the years to kind of do a whole comprehensive look at the show so it's not so much a uh like a recap as it is a behind the scenes tell all yeah 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 from from a fan perspective uh, yeah totally from a fan perspective and you know bringing in some of my own analysis and you know i'm kind of known on insider for doing the 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 details of the episode that you might have missed along the way and all like the references and stuff um so yeah so plugging those into more of a a chapter by chapter look at the show is is my goal so that mm -hmm. did did you say that what your title is is it the unofficial history of game of thrones or unofficial guide unofficial guide yeah that's what we're going for for now because it was actually history to start with but um we thought that that maybe sounded too i don't know like that that wouldn't really be as accessible for maybe the people who you're probably Our, smart as yeah. as as a guy trying to hawk a book on the religions and cultures of it. I I wish maybe we'd uh, come up with something. I don't know the Motley Fools guy. I don't know, something zany, something zany or fun. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, okay, so 
Now that we talked about your unofficial guide, we're going to talk about the official history of the Targaryen dynasty, the dynasty, as Charles Dance would, would call it. <laughs> uh, what did so? What are your overall opinions? Just like real briefly, of Fire and Blood, and we can talk about the third that we're going to be talking about today, um, which is essentially two halves. One is the the mop up operations of the Dance of Dragons, and then the uh, uh the, what would you call that when the king's not a king yet? Uh, the the mine the minor the Reginald yeah, period the, the regency the regency is what, is what they refer to it i think yeah the, the 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 rule of the regents of aegon mm-hmm. the third and mm-hmm. he comes he comes to to age at, at the end of this what are your thoughts on on fire and blood yeah i mean overall there are definitely some pockets of this book that were really compelling to me and i was you know and you guys have talked about this already from a world of ice and fire and some of the other um, books that Martin's put out, we already had an idea of some of these histories. And so for some sections, it was really just getting those a little more fleshed out. Mm -hmm. Um, But there were also chunks of it where I was like fighting to stay awake, honestly, (laughs) just because, I mean, maybe it's by nature of like how busy I am right now with so many other things, but there were just times where I was like, okay, another paragraph of like, 10 new characters eight of which are about to die in the next page so like why should i bother committing these names to memory and um you know there are just there were times where it was a bit of a slog but there are sections overall that um that i liked i liked the whole dance with dragons battle i mean it was brutal i mean talk about talk about some of the worst and like saddest deaths and like all the dragons r.i.p yeah um but yeah, at other times I was like, all right, like another hand of the king who's probably going to last for six months before there's some treachery. And yeah, it, it, like Martin had this thing where like anytime the like a council was considering a marriage match or who should be the hand, they would do like six paragraphs and each paragraph would be, well, Sir Dumbfuck of Hightower <laughs> is, a, is a bluff and stout lord, but he was given to wine and he owed lice a million gold dragons. And then Sir, you know, Harry Bottom of, of Longleaf was, and it's like, these yeah. characters are just introduced in a paragraph to sketch them out and say why they're not suitable for this or that. And it's, it's, um, you know, it's there's there's a, there's about half of this book is essentially the Council of Elrond from you know <laughs> Fellowship of the Ring, which is easily if you're if you're reading the, reading Lord of the Rings and junior high high school, that's the part where it's going to try to break you. You know, right. all this boring history and stuff. And but but as as you said, that there are some some moments. I actually I thought there was some kind of clever twists I did not see coming. Um, like like King Aegon the uh, the, the second during the dance hiding in plain sight on dragonstone i thought was because he had disappeared so long ago that i thought i'd just forgotten that i'd I'd forgotten about him and i i stopped trying to look for when he'd reappear even though it's classic game of thrones you know the guy you you actually don't see him die on the page so you should suspect he's going to come back and him him essentially taking over uh the the dragonstone like stealth stealthily and like building mm-hmm. his power on the inside and waiting for his sister to you know flee westeros and then spring the trap on her i thought that was a, a classic game of thrones twist and was fairly compelling in the reading yeah and he does it again with viserys coming back uh for like to surprise egg on the third yeah um, like that that whole narrative and um lord aelin 
Alan? How are you? I, I said Alan, and I but but Alan. I. <laughs> Uh, yeah, because I think sometimes he just likes to take English names right. and Westerosium, but... Right, that makes so much sense. Here I uh, am trying to like, overcomplicate it. Alan Valerian, the Alan Oaken, Valerian. Oaken Fist. Yeah, I I really liked his whole subplot. And so when that wound up threading in with, you know, the surprise presentation of Viserys, who was alive again, I thought that was really neat um, and well, it was well-crafted, but... yeah. yeah. Alan Valerian and like Cregan Stark, I think, are like the breakout stars of this third of Fire and Blood. Mm-hmm. I, I thought Cregan was pretty entertaining too. Yeah, I liked Cregan. I was maybe I maybe overhyped myself when I read the the table of contents at first and got to the you know the hour of the wolf and I was like, ooh, like we're gonna get so much cool Stark stuff right after the Dance with Dragons. And then I was I was a little bit disappointed that he came and went so quickly because i was i was really interested in him and what he was gonna do so yeah i want to talk to because one of the i i started to like sit up a little straighter in my reading chair when we get to this particularly long and brutal winter because we're 150 years into Aegon's reign and you hear about the winters but they never they never seem that bad uh but then we get like this four year long like winter that's like the worst in what in in recent westerosi history and i'm like oh man because that's that's a question i get asked all the time on the podcast like you know what is winter actually like in westeros does king's landing freeze over does and i'm thinking a four year long winter shit's going to get real mm-hmm. but I, they mention it's kind of chilly in king's landing and the north has got is is suffering from famine but right. They still are able to go up north and attend a wedding ceremony in Winterfell in the in the dead of of winter, two years into this winter, and they yeah. talk about it taking three times longer than it should. But I'm like, I thought I thought the drifts were like 150 feet high around Winterfell in the middle of winter. Like I just felt like the the long brutal winters just didn't live up to my expectations. The rest of the world outside of north of the neck seems like it just continues as as it always does right yeah like you said aside from like the mention of famine i think at white harbor right Mm -hmm, right they say they get hit pretty hard right um yeah that it that just like didn't seem to be the focus of our our narrator here which was maybe a letdown I thought that the yeah I just thought that like when a really long winter came that it would it would touch much Everyone. further south yeah like you would see snows and 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 King's Landing and whatnot but it's essentially like in most of Essos and south of the Neck it's like sweater weather weather right just just it's put like on another we're layer we're and you're fine like it's like L A versus Alaska in <laughs> <laughs> like what happens winter here it's like oh no it's right a little foggy right did I just see a snowflake uh. Yeah. <laughs> But no, I, that's so I was kind of like bummed and I'm like, well, maybe it'll get, you know, because then later in that third, they'd started talking about, you know, some of the stuff that was going. And, and I thought that they were going to return to Winterfell and the north and, and how the Regency was going to kind of solve that problem. But yeah, Cregan just took out a, a fat loan from the Iron Bank and he bought a bunch of grain and everything yeah. was cool. I did. So did and again, I, I didn't have time to like compare this to uh, what we already knew in the world of ice and fire. Like you know, get out the two texts aside. Yeah. Most I of all, because bother. I have the I have the paper version of it, and it's packed in in our because we're in between studios and all of our shits in storage right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I 
thought the storming of the dragon pits there's a lot more detail in like because uh, it was always um it was always unclear to me like why the commoners would do something so rash and crazy as storm the dragon pit you know it's like mm-hmm. uh, attack jurassic park except for the t-rexes breathe fire mm-hmm. and i thought they did a particularly good job of showing just how terrified the small folk were of the uh, uh, the dance of dragons and mm-hmm. how scary that would be to see those things fighting above your your the air and then you get a religious leader that steps forward and says you know all all your problems are brought on by these these dragons and their dragon riders and uh, and their their perversions and their filth and you're never going to be free from them unless you kill them like it 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 felt more of like an act of desperation because like the mm-hmm. the, the 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 drum beat of war just kept on beating louder and louder and you know they made it very abundantly clear how bad it is to be sacked in this book yeah definitely and i i liked that we can see those parallels in what's happening now in mm. a song of ice and fire with like the faith militant and the sparrows and sort of this idea that like you can only terrorize the country for so long before something's going to rise up and like whether or not that's successful or not um is another discussion to be had but yeah i it was really it was very like palpable how terrible it would have been to be shut because like she had shut the gates at that point also nera so like the idea of being shut into this city where like conditions are just getting worse and worse and they had been taxing the people mm-hmm. basically to death and yeah I, I felt like i felt like the whole dance with dragons i i found myself not really rooting for anybody but fully understanding where all of the players were coming from in yeah. their actions which is D- which is interesting the dance of dragons felt like game of thrones except for there's no john snow there's no daenerys targaryen everyone's either cersei or tywin mm-hmm. or i don't know there's not even a lady olena who's like a, a clever there's no Varys. um i guess the clubfoot guy is kind was was kind of a. you mean laris <laughs> yeah yeah whoa 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 is that his real name i think so i Wow, I I, I didn't pronounce it like that in my head, and I'm like, oh my god! I mean, yeah. this is the same guy because I, I got this in my notes right too. He 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 has a Lord Elmo and Sir Kermit, yeah, yeah, uh, of House Tully, and, and, and right, Grover. right, did, and there was a fourth Muppet too. I didn't write it down. Yeah, he did like a whole Sesame Street Tully, yeah, thing. Which you know, then. if, if uh, like Lord Elmo. I mean, I kind of like perked my ears, but like Sir Kermit came right after that and the Grover stuff. Like, I, I felt like that yeah. maybe should have been sprinkled throughout the book instead of, <laughs> yeah. you know, like if you pay th- like every third generation of House Tully is going to be a Muppet reference, but he just <laughs> went for like, yeah, it's the Muppets are all up and in and the Dance of Dragons. Yeah, but no, I yeah, he's he's a he's a Varus type. Now, I got the I got the distinct opinion that this guy was in it for himself and for very you know, kind of like selfish uh you know power ac- uh, either survival or ac- accumulation of power and do you think we're supposed to maybe see Varys through that prism or I mean maybe because I immediately started I immediately like linked the two in my head when he mm-hmm. first cropped up I sort of was reading what he was doing as possibly being for the realm in the same way that Varys hmm acts that way although like it's tough because 
when in a song of ice and fire we have Varys interacting with all of these characters like ned and so forth and because we don't have any like real first person account of what laris i'm just gonna keep saying that sure yeah yeah laris what laris is doing um it's harder it's harder to like feel confident in that but i don't know i kind of i found myself believing that the reason why he kept like flip-flopping and doing all these little machinations behind the scenes was because he was trying to get someone who was more stable on the throne but and even in times of instability trying to blunt that as much as possible like mm-hmm. these we are like it's like there's several points of dance of dragons where there's not any really good options available there's just less right. bad and invariably the damn targaryens would choose the worst bad because Right. You know, fuck those other, fuck the greens or fuck the blacks, if, if depending on what's what side you're on. Right. Did we? I did. I I did not know this detail, and it might have been in other sources, but I did not know that Targaryens chained themselves to their saddles when they rode a dragon, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, the only the only reason why I knew that, and possibly why I enjoyed the Dance with Dragon sections of the book so uh-huh. much more is because I had watched, did you see those, the season five bonus features on the game of Thrones DVDs where they did like animated versions of some of these, like some of these histories. Yeah, no, I I've, I've seen those through season six, but it's been two and a half, three years of, for season, the, the season five stuff. Yeah. So I went and rewatched the dance with dragons one, which is like 20 minutes mm-hmm. long. Um, and so because I had rewatched that somewhat recently, I already knew like the main beats of the story. And mm. one of the things that they specifically mentioned in that was the whole thing with um, Darren not strapping himself to his saddle so that he could like use Dark Sister and kill. Right. Which is uh, pretty badass. Although so, like I think that was my favorite section, especially since it, it, it seemed like it was. It's it's uh it was unnecessary. It's like stabbing to death a uh, you know a jumbo jet pilot who's in a terminal <laughs> tailspin. Like you're not walking away from this no matter what. But just to make sure, I'm gonna leap from my dragon dragon's back onto yours as they're crashing to the earth and and jam this Valerian blade through your eye hole. Yeah. Uh, exactly. No, I, I was wondering because like I uh, I wonder if that will. I I, I wonder why some of these kind of details like exist because you know there's only one dragon rider on Game of Thrones the television series. Do you think that's going to change in season 8? Do you know? Have you got I any leaks? Okay. I don't know. Um I mean I would guess that Jon is going to ride a dragon. Yeah. Yeah. But um, uh cuz cuz Danny doesn't use dra- saddles, does she? As depicted I don't on the show? I think so. If, th- if she does, they haven't made it very clear. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think that she does. Because like, seems dumb. Yeah. No, like, yeah, no. Like a terrible idea. But no one's like taught her. Not no one's taught her better. And there's no like uh, dragon saddlers around. I, I always thought that like right. early Tyrion seasons. Exactly. The whole Tyrion whip up some kind of saddle. And that was going to be key. And, you know, I'm just just wrong about everything. Um, I mean, I feel like that's probably going to be the case in the books. Mm-hmm. I it seems like one of those details that maybe is not like, it's not important to the point where like George told Benioff and Weiss that Danny dies by falling off her dragon because she forgot to, she forgot to put her chains on (laughs) the safety straps. uh. Yeah. So maybe that's just one of those details that the show kind of 
Because, I mean, if I can imagine that that's, like, one more headache for them to try and CGI on. Yeah. There's obviously going to be a lot of differences. You know, like, it, George made it pretty clear that dragons, for whatever reason, don't want to fly north. And we, we talked mm-hmm. about this in the previous podcast, but that is not even a thing in the television show. And it's really... Right. Stuff like that's really made me wonder how wide the drift is going to be between whatever George is, is planning on for the finale and, and what the uh, what, what Dan and, and David have come up with. Mm-hmm. I also thought you know, a lot of pretty regressive worldviews in, in mm-hmm. Game of Thrones, as you suspect, but there's this interesting perspective in Gaiman Palehair, who yeah. was one of the three kind of false kings that briefly ruled King's Landing in between, like there's this power vacuum after the, the Dance of Dragons uh, and you know, there's a couple of these guys that set themselves up as as kings, and they've got you know this guy's I think his claim to fame was that uh, he said that one of the kings had visited his mother who is a prostitute, and he's as illegitimate bastards. But anyway, he's 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 uh, the the Maester Gildane is talking about his edicts, and he describes each each one he gives as more ridiculous than the last. <laughs> but they're things like. Women should be equal in terms of inheritance. The poor should be given beer, uh, bread and beer ration in times of famine. Wounded war veterans should be looked after by the house that they have sworn them to. Uh-huh. Men who beat their wives should yeah. be should be tried and beaten themselves. <laughs> like yeah. it's funny. I the, flagged that so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> like, look at Game and Pale Hair and his like democratic socialist policies. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like these are things we have in modern. They, they, these are all essentially things that we've implemented but uh, they're unthinkable in terms of of uh, game of thrones universe mm-hmm. i also love that it's like because game in pale hair is like four years old when <laughs> right he's crowned and so really those policies are the product of the uh i think it's like a dornish mm-hmm. woman um and the person like the sex worker who's his mother who says that you know this targaryen was the one who uh, impregnated her, but like, so I'm like, okay, so we and they, and it says that they like are companions or that they like sleep together. So I'm like, yeah, the, the like the most like progressive policies are put forth by like two queer women who are yep. <laughs> just trying to do right by the people. And I'm like, this is amazing. And then of course, that doesn't pan out for either of them. I kind of want to hear more about those stories, and I also wanted to hear more about Dorn because I've always thought Dorn sounds like the most screwed on heads of any like if you are not if you're not a man you'll mm-hmm. want to be born in dorn um if you're not a man of impeccable birth even even if you're if you're if you're not a man a, a true born man you definitely want to live in in dorn because they're not really anti-bastard not really anti-women mm-hmm. um it seems like their inheritance is a lot more fair and equitable than than uh, the westeros itself so but we didn't get a lot of dorn there's a lot of pacification of dorn yeah. in the first kind of section and then they kind of threaten rebellion here and there but i, I felt like dorn and and uh the and went and the north are were kind of unre- unrepresented in these books which i thought was surprising yeah i did find myself wishing i was reading a different fake history or a different you know fictionalized history because i mean i think at one point um again in like the aftermath after after Aegon the third is finally seated and they kind they talk about the widows of winter and how everything probably would have descended into chaos again if not for these women who all mm-hmm. made like very smart diplomatic choices right and he writes um that another there's like another archmaster i think his name is abalon 
mm-hmm. who wrote a book called when when women ruled ladies of the aftermath and i'm like right. i want to read that book <laughs> like, yeah 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 that sounds way, like a way more i don't know less uh biased telling of how really so much of this chunk of history in westeros was uh dictated by and like held together by women but of course the maester who we're reading it from doesn't hold those women in the regard that other people might yeah i thought it was interesting because like you know i think of like our our recent past there's been a pretty sharp uptick in like you know women's rights in the last century like you know being granted suffrage and then like as a result of war and women being pushed into the workforce that you know got gained more acceptance there and yeah uh birth control i mean i I, let me mansplain you women's liberation kim (laughs) but like (laughs) <laughs> I, I thought it was I thought it was interesting that you had essentially so much female ru- rulership because of uh you know war, the winter and the famine. Uh there's mm-hmm. so many widows and they're kind of running things. I kind of thought it was weird that that didn't spark like more change. Because yeah. you know Westeros 150 years later looks a lot like the Westeros of 150 years hence and like a lot of the same pressures that our society went through that kind of like, you know, push these changes and you know like once women got in these roles it's like well they're not, they're not gonna be chased out of them i guess you know that'll be part two is like how did they lose that that progress but it does seem like right. that there's a lot of every single time someone suggested like well maybe you let a woman a woman inherit like that was always they love to go back to like no 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 women can't inherit every time we let them things go bad Right. And it reminded me a lot of also there's a comment about uh, bastards, uh, this throwaway line about how, you know, this one, there's this one bastard that, that the, oh, it's the two, it's the two um, dragon seed guys that go rogue. Oh, um, yeah. Ham, hammer. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the hammer and, and the drunkard. I forget what's the, the other guy's name. But when they, they turn cloak, it's like, oh, well, what do you expect? They're bastards. And I'm like, right. dude. Everyone in this book thus far has been true born and there's been no shortage of betrayals and fuckery. Right. It's it's kind of like one of those things where 10 noble lords can do something but one bastard does it and it's like, "Ah, see, here's where you can't have a bastards in position of power." Same way right. like 50 noble lords could do whatever and uh, a woman gets gets in a position of power and makes a mistake. It's like, "Let's see." Yeah. Look That's what happens. I do think like the failure of Renera to when this like civil war i think maybe took a lot of the the wind out of the sails of any sort of possible beginning of um a progressive like women's liberation movement or whatever because i think i think had she been able to succeed that might have been the beginning of a turning tide but because she failed and because she became so paranoid and you know kind of cersei-esque in her in like the final year of this fight that kind of reinforced the bigotry to all of the lords around her of being like, see, mm-hmm. like this, this was obviously a terrible idea. Like, look at how bananas she's gotten. And like, I don't know. So that it kind of makes me wonder if the reason why we're getting this history and, you know, we're getting, we're getting the truth laid out that all of these women had these great ideas and were able to kind of control things after all the men had been so decimated might be like the, pre-precursor to Daenerys trying to do effectively the same thing because Mm -hmm. what we're told throughout this especially like this final chunk is that 
all of these lords still do not think that a woman can ever be fit to rule, which means that Daenerys is probably going to run into similar issues when she lands on Westeros. But it's interesting that by the time we get to A Song of Ice and Fire, we also have Cersei and we also have, you know, Sansa kind of vying for power and Marjorie. And there are more women who are highborn and kind of playing the Game of Thrones, whereas in, in this chunk, it feels like most of the women are happy to be kind of relegated to their husband's sides, even though they are still exercising power. So, and I mean, we're as much as we're seeing parallels, I think with what Danny's about to face, it's the same with John. I mean, like you were just saying all of this bigotry against bastards. It's like John's potentially up against just as many, uh, contentions if mm-hmm. he tries to get close to the throne because of this idea that bastards can't be trusted. So something I also I want to talk about is it's been, you know, one of these kind of fan conspiracy theories that the Maesters were behind the death of the dragons. You know, like there's like this uh, conspiracy theory that's like, oh, yeah, let's put him in this dragon pit and chain him down just, you know, to be safe. And maybe like the 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 kind of stunt and make them smaller and weaker, and then maybe there was even some poisons or some other kind of arts that were employed. I found very little support that. I, I I mean, I'm sure you've you've heard of these kind of like maester conspiracy theories before. Yeah, yeah I yeah. I, fa- I found very little to support that in the text. It seems like it was just Targaryen pigheadedness and um because because the, the it. You know, dragons are large, powerful, and plentiful during the age of the dragon pit. So right. what what went wrong? I mean, the only window where I saw opportunity for people who really subscribe to that theory is when they first introduced the shepherd character. Mm-hmm. And uh, he makes specific mention that, like, no one really knows where he came from or why he had such, like, a bias against the Targaryens and their dragons. And so... That kind Interesting. Of piqued, that kind of piqued my interest because I was like, he could very easily have been a plant by someone smarter who knew that like they needed someone who kind of looked a little ragtag and worse for the wear to start like preaching and riling up the people against the dragons. So I didn't like, yeah, I didn't see any direct evidence in terms of like the creation of the dragon pit and thus, but I think that the shepherd is possibly there as a stand-in for someone else who was behind the scenes and wanted the dragons gone. Yeah, it's because there's other you know, conspiracy theory we've talked about on the podcast about essentially the faith of the seven being an engineered religion from mm-hmm. the, the citadel, and mm-hmm. so it would be interesting if if they used him as like a cat's paw to like. And that's the other thing is like I feel like that now if you're in this maester anti-dragon conspiracy, like if you're a Marwin, uh, subscribe to Marwin's thoughts that the maesters had something to do with it that it's no longer something that they had like a long plan for, but it's more of like an opportunistic thing. Like, Oh, look at these Targaryens at each other's throats. There's very few, like the dragons have been shrunk down to like a small enough population to where we could with one decisive action. If we could whip everybody into it, we could, we could, we could take these things off the board. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that that's very possible because something about the shepherd just seemed off to me and the fact that like yeah that our maester here decided like specifically pointed out that no one really knew where he had come from or what his motivations were yeah there's the the only negative about that is at least a dozen there's half a hundred characters that are introduced like that in this book (laughs) true there's many and more (laughs) true i know 
uh, on the nonce. Um, yeah. Okay, I thought it was also interesting that there's a couple of books that the there's a couple of mysteries that the book intentionally sets up, um, like what happened to Sheep Stealer and Nettles. Yeah. That they resolve, and there's there's been hints. Uh, there, there there's been hints before that the Burnman Mountain Tribe or Mountain Clan were like founded by this fire witch that lived in the mountain. And I feel like that the final in this book anyway, the final disposition of of Sheep Stealer Nettles is setting her up to be that fire witch. Yeah. Like. Like these guys that have to offer parts of themselves to their god to be burnt, and that's how they gain honor, and they're the most ferocious, and, uh, and they're, they're also the most dominant of the tribes. Like it seems mm-hmm. like somehow she had recruited them as her followers, and with her, you know, power, with, with I guess her dragon. Although it's kind of hard to see how a dragon be flying around the veil, and nobody would be like, "Hey, there's a dragon out here." Right, because I guess like when they stumble upon her, she's in a cave, and I'm like, right. right, isn't that going to like weaken your dragon if you're keeping him right just in a cave for the rest of his life? Although it does seem like that's her natural habitat, though. Like yeah, dragons true. left to their own devices, like to roost up in the you know the mountains yeah, of Dragonstone, yeah. and I really was interested in um, Alice Rivers, the paramour to Aemond Targaryen, yeah, uh-huh. who. Like that was another one of those twists where when she showed up at Harrenhal and like had his bastard son. But if I I reread that section and like she never says what his name is, but she says that he has a claim to the throne because they were he's a trueborn son because like she claims that she was married to Prince Aemond. Mm-hmm. Um, and they he kind of he left that open ended. So I guess we're gonna have to wait for volume two. But that was a that was a character that I really gravitated towards mostly because of all the Tower of Joy parallels. Mm. Like, them kind of holding up in Harrenhal together secretly was... Uh, yeah, just... It, the, I liked that little thread. They also had that detail where she's possibly got sorceress powers. Because right. a- a- Eamon mentioned that, like, you know, she had seen... He knew where to find Damon uh, by essentially seeing a vision out of the smoke and fire, which I, I also I thought maybe puts her in a little bit of a red priestess territory. Like she's converted yeah. and we'll find that out. There's also yeah. a lot in volume two, which, you know, the, the big, uh, it's the Blackfire rebellion, which is the big thing to look forward to in volume two. And there's a mm-hmm. lot of talk of, and cause I remember like, you know, doing some fan research and, and going through the world of ice and fire. There's a lot of talk about like that Sierra sea star and how she, dabbled right. in the dark arts with her paramour brendan rivers and he's kind of a warlock and i wonder if like she's the start of the uh yeah. dabbling of of uh, of uh targaryens with with witchcraft yeah maybe it's funny because when when they first introduced her and i can't remember if it was before or after the whole section on nettles but like at first i was kind of rolling my eyes because i was like this maester just obviously thinks that like if a not attractive woman uh gets in bed with a prince that she must have somehow like magicked him in right there because there's no possible way that he right have, like found her attractive because she's like but, 40 and he was 20 right that was the whole right but like when yeah like after the whole heron hall thing and the, the whole thing with like the messenger that she sends back um mm-hmm. 
and he says like you can't laugh at what i'm about to say otherwise she'll kill me and then the one right. laugh and he's like strangled in front of everybody i was kind of like oh okay like, yeah because they did that scooby-doo they did that scooby-doo thing where like uh when they you first meet her she's like on the battlements and she's issuing these challenges through the lore and then somebody says something to her and she makes a motion with her hand and his head explodes mm-hmm. right. but then the septon's like oh but you know, that could just be a signal to hit him with a crossbow bolt or this right. fucking mushroom guy, which I, I really did not I really I did know. not enjoy mushroom. And I'm, I'm glad to see him definitively shuffling off into the pages of history by the end of this book. <laughs> yeah. But he's yeah. like, oh, yeah, someone could have hit him with like a metal ball from a sling or and I'm like, oh, OK. So it's like, you know, early goings of Game of Thrones or is it magic? It might not be magic. And right. then, you know, I don't think there's any explanation for what later happens if that's right. like a true telling. As right. the, this maester says, uh, that's just magic. It's long distance right. magic. I really liked Bela and Reyna, the twins, who um, Bela is like the one who ultimately kills Aegon the Second's dragon and blames yeah. the game. Um, but they, I think that because uh, like Bela and Lord Allen, mm-hmm. um, like I, I was really. I was really digging both of their characters when they were they're, they're, they're a power they're a power couple. Yeah, and when they got together I was like, "Ooh, yes. Like I I dig this." So, um, yeah, and again, I like I wanted more of them. I was a little bit bummed that they had been relegated to like a sort of side story, but I I thought that the that those twins were really interesting and I'm already pre-morning for Reyna's dragon since obviously mm. something terrible is going to happen to it. Yeah, but. Aegon III's not called, he's not called the Dragon Bane because right. dragons <laughs> pro, you know, proliferated during his his reign. I I too was a little uh kind of bummed because they they lead this up and when they get married the maester says something about you know that this is the one of the stormiest relationships in westeros and i'm like wow it says a lot because there's been some freaking stormy ass relationships so far in this yeah. book and yeah they got in a fight over some i forget miss because he talked about the the princess of doran a little too too warmly right. and she got mad at him but then everything got kind of papered over so not really and i'm like oh i thought because I, I thought I really liked Jaharis and Queen Allison. Uh, I thought that was kind of like the high water. And I thought that, oh, we might get like a part two of that. But it never really quite took off. But yeah. he's still got a lot. Like he's we've Fair already enough. been on two of his six famous voyages so far. Yeah. So there's still uh, there's there's still room for for more tales of her and uh, him. And is it Bela? Yeah. Okay, because yeah. man, I got that's the other thing is boy, keeping track of all these Targaryens with their very similar sounding names and spellings is is very tough, very tough for me. Yeah, yeah, I I think Bela stuck out to me because she she's another kind of like Arya precursor. I felt like in a way right. where it was like she was one of the sisters who was more, you know, they loves the word willful. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, oh, God forbid she have a mind <laughs> willful and lusty are the yeah. the things you don't want to be in this book apparently yeah exactly but, yeah i liked in the you're right there is a very aria sansa because her twin they were separated and raised and and, and and fostered in two very different environments and then when yeah. they come back together although they get along a lot better than than sansa and aria. right and they got along before they were separated right um, but yeah i was still seeing those those parallels there for sure another name that i flagged was what, like one of the random characters whose name was ned bean 
and I was like, "Is that like a Ned Stark?" Sean oh Bean shit! I didn't even. Reference? I didn't. The, the the Black Bean wasn't he? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Because they they call him Black Bean for most of the time, but when they first talk yeah, you're about right. Him, his name Ned Bean, and I was like, Aha. <laughs> yeah, he I, does like I, doing that. There's a long history of him, like you know, putting Bill Belichick in there and uh, the Giants getting uh, the Giants getting beat by. The, pa- the Patriots, the pa- 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 Patri- Patriots of, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was just another fun one that I noticed. Um, yeah. And it's just, I mean, overall, I, I, I understand the way that George has reserved the right to change any of this or to have it actually not mean anything since he's writing it from this unreliable, uh, narrator point of view. But it, right. it, yeah, it makes it even harder to try and like, suss out those things but there's like there's weird stuff like i know you um you and anthony talked about the three dragon eggs that were stolen Mm -hmm. and it seems very obvious that those are probably danny's dragons but back in april on his blog like when he first did the big fire and blood announcement he got real prolific in the comment section Mm -hmm. of that post and um someone said like oh can't wait to find out the origin of danny's babies because the like official bantam kind of like promo had said something about that mm-hmm. and george responded to them and said uh i never said anything about danny that was added by bantam please disregard huh and i'm like what why why what, what are you playing at martin and he said hmm well i think some of the hype is overblown but that is the nature of advertising there are a few bits and scenes and suggestions in the text from which one can extrapolate certain things and concoct theories i mean i kind of think with him i think him writing fire and blood i mean he obviously he had a large percentage of it already written from yeah. back when he was working on a world of ice and fire i think mm-hmm. the exercise of him going back and you know, fluffing it up and finalizing it so that it could be published. Um, I think that that might have unstuck him in some ways because I think that he was having such intense writer's block with the winds uh-huh. of winter and was just so like, I mean, this is me completely projecting based on his blog posts and stuff. No, I've got the exact same theory. Yeah, it just seemed like he was so, like, that was so messy and like depressing for him that. Uh-huh. For him to turn his attention to Fire and Blood and just kind of like get back in the world, churn out some stuff, maybe plug in a couple like foreshadowing clues. I think that that kind of like freed up his brain a little bit. And the way that he talks about the winds of winter now, like just in the last month or so, Uh, is so markedly different. Like he posted something, I think, just a couple days ago Mm -hmm. where like, do you remember that big, big sad New Year's? day post mm-hmm. about the winds of winter where like he always attaches an emotion to his blog post and that one was just depressed and mm-hmm. i like uh it just depressed me like i felt so bad for him but yeah. he just did another one and this time i'm trying to find i think that the emotion he attached to it was excited and he says that he's in he calls it his fortress mm-hmm. but apparently he has like a special cabin where he goes when he is kind of more focused on writing Mm -hmm. and he says that he's there right now and that he's working on wins so i don't know i i'm i'm trying to to keep my optimism even if it's maybe unfounded but i i think that i think that it might have done the trick for him my other kind of pet theory about fire and blood is that george 
is probably under contract with his publishers to get out a certain number of books. Uh. And I think that they might have hit a point where they were like, all right, you're clearly not giving us the winds of winter anytime soon. So like you need to, we need to publish something. So like, right. what do you got? And he was right. like, well, I have 1200 words on uh, or 1200 pages on Targaryens or whatever. So mm-hmm. I like, maybe it was more of that unless him personally being like, I'm far more interested in the Targaryens than winds of winter right now. And, possibly more of his publisher being like just give us something that we mm-hmm. can slap your name on and that also explain because as we're going through like all those like you know pages where it's just people you don't know and very very thinly sketched characters i'm mm-hmm. like man it seems like the thing to do would just be cut all this and be like the right. the ground the grand council met and after much deliberation they an- appointed so-and-so as the hand and here are his qualities and instead of like you know having four or five of these suitors that you just dismiss out of hand you build you you introduce them just to dismiss them like yeah you know do it's do one volume of, of uh, he's like changing the margins on his term paper to get it to, <laughs> <laughs> to 12 pages right i owe at least two books of 700 pages <laughs> to my publisher so what can i do to inflate this yeah all right well i appreciate you coming on the show again and i am very excited to be able to see your complete and uh your unofficial guide to game of thrones um that seems like a very cool project and you do you have such great attention to detail uh i i'm sure it's going to be something that that fans are are going to be interested in do you do you have a street date for that or is something that you guys because i know you're in the process of writing it so it's it's many many moons away yeah so i'm i'm in the process of writing it our my goal for the book and what it is going to be is a complete unofficial guide so from start to finish of the series so i'm going to be wrapping up my final chapters of the book uh as the final episodes are airing in the spring oh right you're going all the way through Uh, season eight yeah 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 and so our our aim is to have it on shelves by like september or october 2019 so awesome yeah well that's cool i would love to have you back for some thoughts on season eight and when your new book comes out that would be cool to cover too of course. I, I feel like I'll be doing Game of Thrones stuff for a while uh, until I or the the watching public is sick of the HBO prequels and the <laughs> Martin sequels and the history books and all that kind of stuff. So I'll be I'll be around and covering it for the foreseeable future. And yeah. you always got a sl- slot on this podcast. Uh, Kim, if people want to find you and follow you and partake of your fabulous content, where would they go to to do that? Um, so you can find me on insider.com. Uh, you can search Kim Renfro and I'm sure my author page will crop up and you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Kim R Renfro. Um, and I post all my stuff and just other miscellaneous, uh, a song of ice and fire and game of Thrones thoughts there all the time. So come say hello and thank you so much for having me on. And I always love our, our chats about this world and it's been great. Yeah, I uh, I'll put links to all those things that Kim just said, so you don't have to put, punch them into your browser. Uh, it'll be <laughs> nice and convenient for you. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Joining me now is Chase Stone, an illustrator. And you've probably, if if you're a Game of Thrones fan, you've got the World of Ice and Fire. 
You're probably familiar with his work. If you've played Magic the Gathering in the last few years, you're certainly familiar with his work. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Chase. Uh, hey, Aaron. I'm happy to be here. I, I mentioned uh, Magic the Gathering, the World of Ice and Fire. It's it's funny because before we started working together, uh, you were, I think, one of the lead illustrators on the, uh, what was the Egyptian-flavored Magic the Gathering pack? The, um, oh, yeah. Amonkhet. Amonkhet. And I remember, because, you know, I'm always, I've, I've always said that uh, when it comes to magic, uh, well, if anything, kind of, I'm a kind of a lore whore and an art whore. And I remember uh, I got, it's been 10 years since I've been away from magic, and we just played some random, like, you know, booster draft with my buddies. And I was like, looking at, like, you know, all this uh, really cool artwork. And I'm, and, and I especially paid attention to, like, the depiction of the gods. And I was like, man, that's just really really freaking amazing. And I found out that you were the, like I said, the kind of lead illustrator in that particular project. Yeah. Well, I got all the artwork for the gods, So I, I illustrated all five of them, but I also attended the concept push mm-hmm. like 10 months earlier where you go out to Seattle and, uh, work with a few other artists for a few weeks, like at the headquarters. And so I, I did the concept art for all the gods too. So yeah, those guys are like top to bottom, uh, you know, uh, my work. So if you didn't like them, it's my fault. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, they're hard not to like, and I I want to talk about um, what other kind of projects my people have seen you from professionally. Um, well, yeah. So the you know, uh, Magic World of Ice and Fire. I did a like a couple of years ago, I did a lot of work for Applebot, like Legends of the Cryptids. That's another card game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've just started doing work for Artifact, the new Dota game. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, beyond that kind of stuff, it's probably less stuff that like Game of Thrones fans would be familiar with. It's more like advertising, editorial stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, book covers, um, I did a textbook for West Point a couple of years ago. Oh, the the uh, military I, academy. Yeah, yeah. That's doing a bunch of like soldier illustrations huh. and stuff. Uh, that's wild. Yeah. That's wild because I was wondering, like, if you kind of uh, you you, you uh, one of the questions I want to ask is like, is fantasy like high fantasy art kind of like something that suits you naturally? Is it a passion of yours, or is it just something that pays the bills? Or because I kind of blows my mind to think you're just illustrating pedestrian everyday stuff. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, the funniest thing is that up until I'd say like just earlier this year, I mean, growing up, I was really into science fiction. Mm -hmm. And I always in my mind thought of myself as like a science fiction artist. (laughs) And then in, uh, in April, I got hired to do this whole illustrated book for Coheed and Cambria. Uh And it was a sci-fi project. Right. And one of the things that they were nervous about was that I didn't have any sci-fi in my portfolio. <laughs> and they're like, so can he do sci-fi? So yeah, I guess I'm a fantasy illustrator now, but I always thought of myself as like science fiction. Man, that... But I do love fantasy. Yeah, I mean, they are kind of joined at the hip. Traditionally, if you like one, you have at least a pat. I've never met someone that's into sci-fi and hates fan. Although I guess Jim is the closest. He's kind of got like a, a massive mm. blind... Like he enjoys Game of Thrones. and like He's one of those guys, he's not going to be an asshole. It's like if you hate country, you still got to kind of like Johnny Cash. Uh, so like if yeah. the, the best of the genre he, he enjoys and pays attention to. But uh, 
Uh, I also think it's kind of funny that like someone would be like, "Can you do like if I, I?" It's it's staggering to see someone like look at you, draw a picture of dragons in combat in the sky, and be like, "I wonder if you could draw a spaceship." Like maybe he just he just can't make those oh, yeah. shapes come come out of his fingers. I, no, you'd be amazed some of the stuff you hear. Like, uh, yeah, I've heard, like, you know, like art directors for, like, advertising. Uh-huh. They, you know, they'll look at your portfolio when you have realistic depictions of, like, everything, and they're like, but can he draw a sneaker? <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> some people have hard time, like, kind of extrapolating, you know. No, I, it's, uh, clients are clients are hilarious. Um, no matter what, mm-hmm. what, whether you're doing web design or... F- science fiction science fiction art they're just uh it's it's funny um i want to talk about how you came to be involved in gods of thrones because i you know when i, I did the kickstarter we're raising this money and i'm like you know anthony and i are talking about like man we're gonna have to you know go out and find, search the internet for a ragtag team of, of illustrators and artists and whatnot to to do some of this stuff and uh you you contacted me through the kickstarter and uh, talk about mm-hmm. how talk about how we got in in touch I mean, yeah, it was as simple as that. Where I was listening to, uh, I was listening to something. I don't remember which podcast it was, but you did like an advertisement for your book, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you were talking about hiring artists and you know, and commissioning artwork, and uh, you know, I was just listening, and then it was like maybe like an hour later, where I realized, like, oh wait a minute, like. I make art. <laughs> like, I, I could do that, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I've been listening to Bald Move for uh, like you know a long time. I think I started listening to to you spe- specifically, like if, for when you were doing the Night's Watch. Oh right, with Mad Brew. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And so I've been listening for a long time, and uh, you know, yeah, I was just kind of excited at the idea of kind of contributing to something that related to bald move uh you know i mean you guys you know i've gotten like all these hours of you know entertainment from you guys while i'm working and so uh i don't know i just thought it'd be really cool no i i i was thrilled and you know there's so we've we have actually done a lot of most of the most of the professional engagements we've had in the last three or four years have been like leads that we followed from you know bald move listeners kind of heeding the call and it's always amazing to see like what kind of talents and and uh that that people come up with but even still like uh you know when you're i I felt like you you kind of soft pedaled because like hey yeah i do art and uh you know check out my portfolio and (laughs) i I, i'm okay because like you know you never know you never know it's going to be it's uh because it's like the american idol concept like it it could be someone that just does Mm -hmm. ms paint and i look at your portfolio and i'm like holy shit whole this is actually the world of (laughs) this is shit from the world of ice and fire oh my god so I was uh, really, really pleased, um, and I'm glad we were able to to hook up. Uh, I was curious about yeah. kind of what got you into art because um, it's funny. I I had a dream of being an artist when I was in like junior high and high school. I wanted to be a comic book artist in particular, and I drew and painted and took every art class I could. And I got into my early to mid twenties and started like focusing on my IT career, and I just I don't know whether those are just impossible to mix in one's brain, but it kind of like withered and died and, you know, I haven't, I haven't kept up with it. Um, but I was curious about why you, why, why you got into art is, is was this kind of like your dream career or what? Yeah. I mean, 
what you were just describing is pretty much what I what I was doing uh, when in school and as a young kid. So I was I was always drawing uh, since uh, you know since I was really little. And uh, my dad, you know, he's a uh, he works for um, CBS, but he's a really he's a really great uh, draftsman as well. Oh. And so we would always draw together when I was a kid. And um, yeah, and it was just something that. I always wanted to do and I just sort of like had the, I guess like the good fortune to, you know, have parents that were supportive and, uh, was able to go to school, like the focused on illustration mm-hmm. and I was able to, you know, just sort of come out of school. My, I met my agent at our senior show and, uh, and then I sent my work to magic as I graduated. And so pretty much right out of school, I was able to start working professionally. And then it's just sort of been, yeah. And then I've just sort of, one thing has led to the, to another uh, over the years. It's amazing. Cause like, I feel like uh, there's probably a lot of frustrated artists. Like it's that easy for, for fucking real. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, but a lot of things had to line up just right. Like, uh, you know, I had a friend who was interning for right. my agent, you know, and, um, I guess with magic, that is just sort of like, yeah, you send your work in and, you know, you, you get hired or you don't mm-hmm. or you don't. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. It's funny because it's like, it's amazing. It's like hard work and dedication are like a requirement, but there's, it's like just like getting those little lucky breaks. Uh, so, so important to, to getting into any like podcasting or art or whatever. Yeah. 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 Without a doubt. I was curious about, uh, like some of your influences, um, like growing up, I know that like art Adams, um, and Jim Lee and Marvel comics were like guys I looked up to and thought like their art style was particularly, um, something that I kind of want to emulate and and adopt as my style. Do you have any kind of influences or people that it could be like artists, musicians or whatever to kind of inspire you or you look to for like inspiration? Well, definitely as a kid, I would go through my, like, my art of Star Wars books, Mm. like, over and over again and draw stuff from those. So I really loved, you know, like, Doug Chang from the the prequels and, uh, you know, Ralph McQuarrie Mm -hmm. from the original trilogy. And, um, you know, those guys were were pretty huge. Even, like, Drew Struzan, uh, you know, the poster artist. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not familiar um, with his work. I know Chang, um, Doug, and uh, I just spaced the the Macquarie. Their yeah, yeah. their line work is just amazing. I remember because you know people's got opinions on the prequels, but uh, Chang's just like the stuff he was able to do with a marker is yeah. is just amazing. Yeah. No. I mean, obviously, yeah. You say what you want about the prequels as stories, but the design work in those movies are. are pretty it's pretty incredible mm-hmm. you know and uh but yeah so it's like those guys as, as far as like design goes and then with artwork i think uh like i was really i really enjoyed like caravaggio's work as a kid mm-hmm. um and it doesn't like my work nowadays doesn't it's not trying to emulate that but it's his work kind of made it click for me that lighting is just as can be just as important a part of an image as you know the characters and the composition and every other element right 
So, um, so that was pretty big for me. That's a, a nice jumping off point because um, I want to talk about your kind of technique and style. Because one thing that like I, th- I think jumps off the page to me and, and even Anthony is, as you mentioned, your use of light. Like you pay really close attention to like, it seems like where the light is coming from. There's lots of like translucency and, you know, characters being transfixed by, uh, you, you know, like shafts of light and, and whatnot. And it's almost like there's a lot of like almost pre Raphaelite. Everything just looks like glowing and beautiful or like dark and inky. How, what, what 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 do you call that st- the style? Are you like all digital, or you still do some traditional work? Well, how how do you achieve that? Yeah, I'm, for my professional work, yeah, I'm all digital, and uh, you know, like I do like warm up like traditional sketches sometimes, you know. But yeah, otherwise, yeah, it's all just digital and Photoshop. Do you do like is and, it Wacom uh, tablets, or you use a big Surface tablet? Yes, yeah, really. Okay, have you? Yeah, I, right now. Yeah, right now I'm just using like a Wacom Intuos tablet, mm-hmm. and I'm probably going to get a new Cintiq pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Cintiq is the is the big screen tablet. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you actually because uh, because I've um, I've uh, I haven't got a lot of digital experience, but I have used a little bit of Wacom tablets, and it's a little bit of adjusting process to like draw on a thing that actually draws on something else. You know, right. not, not having yeah, the, yeah. the the actual thing, so you're looking at and drawing and all that kind of stuff, but uh, yeah, yeah, it definitely takes some getting used to. Um, and then so how? I mean, this is kind of like probably just like well, you just you just practice a lot until you get the the effect. But like, what? How? 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 How do you think about those terms of like light? Do you actually think about like where the light is coming from and what surfaces are bouncing them off, or what? Because I mean, like I just I look at the cover of our of our book and it's uh, if you don't know it's these um, these first men that are setting fire to a weirwood tree, kind of depicting the the first uh, clashes between the children of the forest and and the first men, and it's essentially a like the, it's something the dead of night and there's snow and these guys are holding torches and. Like, it seems like it'd be very hard to get all that stuff planned out and make the colors look just so. Is that just something you kind of intuit, or is there a process to it, or? Um, yeah, like, I mean, when I'm coming up with, like, a composition and stuff, yeah, I, I, like, I always feel like it's really important to make sure that all the light in the image is, like, diegetic, right? Like, it's coming from somewhere uh, within the piece, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to, like, you know, I see a lot of artwork where they treat it like a kind of like a camera shoot and sort of like place lights right. you know, around the scene that don't really exist in there to kind of like get the effect that they want. But I, yeah, I always want all the lighting to be coming from something, you know, natural. Like the the closest thing to would be just like you know uh, light from the sky, like where you can't where maybe you can't see where it's coming from, but you can intuit that it's coming from you know like the sky, right? You know? something yeah you can always tell where the light's coming from um but yeah like i'm really big on getting proper reference when i'm working you know and so like that usually means like me like like for most or almost all of my work like if there's any characters in the piece like i've probably posed for those (laughs) you know so like so i'll take like pictures of myself that's like an alex ross alex ross kind of thing he's big on you know, of course, yeah, he's also like photorealistic type of painter. So I guess uh, there's something to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You always want you always want good reference. You know, 
and that helps too with like w- working out where the light's coming from and stuff. And then you know, in addition to you know taking pictures of myself, like I'll set up little scenes, like uh, well, like you know, back in the day, like I would do, uh, you know, another artist well that I was really inspired by is James Gurney, like the Dinotopia guy. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and so he would, he sets up, he, he creates, like, these really detailed maquettes and stuff and, like, sets up whole scenes and, and, and lights them and, and in order to, you know, as reference for his paintings. Mm-hmm. And so I would do kind of similar stuff like that, you know, like, I'd make stuff out of, like, Play-Doh <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, and, like, I would go as detailed as I possibly could. Like, one thing, one of my favorites was for like a magic card where a guy is like stomping on the ground mm-hmm. and like creating this ripple when the ground is all breaking up. Mm-hmm. So I put uh, some plaster on uh, an old rug <laughs> and let the, let the plaster dry so that then I could bend the rug and then all the plaster would crack uh-huh. right in a believable way. And then I would reference that. That's and, cool. Uh, yeah. So you, yeah. Are, do you, but these, I was gonna say, do you, when you say you get as detailed as possible with this Play-Doh, like you're not just rolling Play-Doh snakes and stuff. You are, do you have some uh, you have some interest and skill in actually sculpting and molding, or are you just trying to get the basic shapes to see yeah. what the light looks like on them? With that kind of stuff, yeah, it would just be like the basic shapes. And uh, I mean, these days, like all of that work has now become digital too. Really? So, like, I'll do like yeah, I'll do like rough blockouts in like 3D. Hmm. You know, that serve the same purpose, but it's just, but it's much faster than setting up like physical stuff. Sure. Do you kind of miss the practical yeah, thing yeah. though, or is it just like, yeah, you, you... yeah, a, yeah, a little bit because like, like that, the rippling effect on the ground, like that's kind of a neat little thing, you know, to describe to describe to people. Right. And it was like a fun process, you know, and it was like a break. And now it's like, you know, you can't really describe like, oh yeah, I set up like a a plane with <laughs> a displacement map or something, mm-hmm. you know? And, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. After that, then, you know, it's, then it's more or less what you'd expect with like just the drawing and painting and everything. But, uh, but yeah, I always try to like, you know, yeah, get as much information as I can. And that's uh, before I start working. So that's both in research and then also in, in reference. Uh, I was wondering, like, your personal involvement with Game of Thrones. Like, I I know you're, like, a science fiction guy, but were you, before you got tapped to do, like, World, were you a fan of the series or a fan of the books or? Yeah, yeah, at that point, um, I definitely definitely was. Um, yeah, I started, I, start, I got familiar with the series when the show premiered. Um. And then, you know, I watched most of the first season. And then in between episodes, I think eight and nine, I read the first book. Uh-huh. And and then, yeah, I finished the season and I read all the books. And so by the time I got tapped to do World, yeah, I had read everything. And I was like, yeah, I was pretty pretty involved with it. What was it like to work on World? Like, did they seek you out? Do you Did you submit? Like, I, I'm not sure how this stuff kind of works. Like, do you, is it kind of like in Hollywood where, like, there's a cattle call and people submit their headshots and you submit your dragon shots and then you hear back from them? Or did they, like, hey, we really like what this guy's doing over at the Wizards of the Coast with Magic and they contacted you? How, how did that come together? Yeah, this this one, like, when I do Magic, like, that sort of, considered like an in-house gig like what i did with you guys was like an in-house gig where it's like between between me and the 
uh, and the client. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one was something through my agent, uh, mm-hmm. Richard Solomon. So he got contacted by the world people, um, and they had like a few artists, you know, including me that they were interested in. And then, yeah, then he contacted me. I said I was interested. And then, yeah, then we, then we started a back and forth. Um, but yeah, it's actually kind of funny. Like I haven't actually solicited work. Um, like this project with you is the first time I've actually solicited work since, Mm -hmm. uh, since I graduated. Well, I've, um, usually, usually it comes through like, you know, commission requests and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So I was going to say, I was going to follow up with like, how did like working on the world of ice and fire compare to like magic gathering, but it sounds like it was like completely different from, but it's still, I'm kind of interested because, and it sounds like you've been, uh, interest, you've been involved in like magic from like multiple different like levels because I used to when I was you know into magic I would like pay attention to the lore stuff and they'd interview artists and my understanding is like when you Ill- are called on to illustrate a card they have like pretty pretty descriptive things of like what they want to see you know it's pretty detailed mm-hmm. um, and then like I'm wondering when someone like one of the things you illustrated in the world of ice and fire is the King who knelt. Um, I think it's mm-hmm. Torin Stark surrendering yeah. to Aegon. And yeah. what did, what was the, what, how much detail did you get as far as like, you know, this thing should look this and they should be wearing this kind of armor and it should be in this kind of setting. Uh, was it like that detailed or was it pretty broad or, or what? Yeah, no, I think I did, It was just sort of like a little paragraph. I mean, it is a bit, it, it is pretty similar to magic in that, yeah, I get like kind of a brief art description. Um, and then I was fairly free to kind of just, yeah, I mean, when it comes to armor and that kind of thing, that was like uh, completely up to me and the other artists uh, working on our pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there wasn't any, you know, sometimes with magic, you'll get some concept art or you'll have a style guide. Uh-huh. And uh, so there was none of that with with World. I was curious because, like, I you know we 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 went back and forth talking about like the cover of the book, and you know we we kind of described like kind of a couple of things that, that might be cool. And it wasn't very detailed. And when I got it back, like, I kind of marveled at like you just kind of like organically came up with um, with armor that like if I had a thought to describe like what would the first men kind of wear. It's like a lot of like mm-hmm. Bronze Age. It's a lot of furs and skins. It's kind of you know it's 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 recognizably Westerosi but primitive. Like how how do you do, how do you make those decisions? Do you like do you have like a whole bunch of like uh, internet diving where you go and look at the distant elements of armor? You just kind of freestyle it, or is it just coincidentally pick the right things? How how, how does that come together? <laughs> well, I you know I looked up what descriptions there were of the first men right in the book and it mentioned bronze Mm -hmm. um and then yeah there's always like a a research period where i'll just sort of like go down you know just do a a kind of a broad image search and see if there's anything that i find and then if there's anything that i do like you know i find out what that's called and i'll search on that and and, you know just sort of go through like spend a few hours uh, researching stuff and uh yeah, I think the the armor that they're wearing in the cover was based on this bronze armor piece. Uh, 
in a museum that I got a few shots of that I can't quite remember. Is it Norse? Because I, 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 I think I might have uh, – because there's like a bronze helm piece that is like from some kind of Scandinavian Norse Viking culture that kind of it reminds – some, some of the, the helms the guys were wearing reminded me of. Yeah, the helmets were inspired by those guys. I, like I was – I felt pretty free to kind of – pick things from different cultures and stuff right. because, you know, you know, the first men are like a fantasy civilization, right? Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, as long as it was all within kind of that Bronze Age, mm-hmm. like, yeah, area, then I felt, felt comfortable kind of sampling from it. So, yeah, the helmets are a bit Norse, like the, but the armor itself is like uh, more like scale armor kind of. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of a little different and, you know, yeah, I wanted it to feel of that time, but also like a little bit, a little unique, right? Like the, it's not just, oh, it's not just Vikings, right? Right. Uh, like uh, it's a little bit, it's a little different. And uh, yeah. Um, I was curious about, you know, do you have any like personal favorites? Um, like what's your favorite uh, illustration you've done for like George Martin's world, like world of ice and fire or whatever. Do you have a personal favorite? I mean, out of the world of ice and fire ones, probably the Torrin Stark kneeling mm. all of the, you know, I did like, it was like half, uh, really like widescreen, like 21, nine, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like Lawrence of Arabia kind of right. like ultra widescreen. Epic and then scale. There's also ones. Yeah, yeah. And then there's also the other half were like these more portrait ones. Mm-hmm. I think all of the all of the really widescreen ones I think came out really nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's like Torrin Stark kneeling, uh, building the wall, uh, the uh, this Targaryen was it a Targaryen character? Uh, Prince Garen. Mm-hmm. Uh, on a wait, is Prince Garen being? Defeated by the Targaryens was another one mm-hmm. that I really liked. Mm-hmm. I was going to say also the ones that I've that I've done for you guys now really aren't any different from World of Ice and Fire illustrations. Like that cover could have easily been commissioned by that by uh, by them. Yeah, and I, I really would have I would have gone about it the exact same way. That's so uh, you know those those count too. And I think that I'm I'm pretty proud of that cover. I think that that cover. Uh, I like just as much as, as those ones. Yeah, the cover's incredible. I have a soft spot for your... Because we, you know, to kind of try to stay out of trouble with for with George, because, uh, you know, you don't want to... You just want to jack someone's intellectual property. We try to stick to illustrating things that, you know, are pretty pretty broad and also things that are, like, coming from more of, like, a fan theory that may or may not happen. Like, we had you uh, illustrate a particular... Uh, potential combat between two gigantic brothers because and i don't want to name the name because i don't want to f- dig out the hip-hop air horn sound effect that i'd have to pipe in uh I'm trying to keep hype <laughs> levels down but like i really really on a win like you know when we kind of decide this like you know it's like hey one of the one of the kind of the fan theories we do in the book is this Roose bolton as a vampire uh lord mm-hmm. and you know because like that's i don't know if you've done any vampires from magic the gathering but i've always kind of liked their takes on you know and, and the the way vampires kind of look and, and move and i just like mm-hmm. hey what if, what if we just did i, I kind of had okay what if it's roose bolton bolton's vampire and i kept on like here's a scenario where he's just kind of like you know looking over the ramparts of the dreadfort and you can see and you be he's you know it's, it's kind of muted and i got gotten crazier and crazier it's like but you know like what if we just go for it and like roose is full-on vampire and he's attacking a stark retinue 
and there's yeah. so direwolf that the Stark Lord tried to warg into to fight him off, and it's so fu- it's so badass, man. I love it so much. I can't, <laughs> I can't wait till we finish because one of the Kickstarter tiers that we're still in production is the the poster tiers, and I cannot wait to get a poster pack because I'm going to hang that sucker up in my office uh, in a place of honor because yeah. it's it's so cool. <laughs> Yeah, that one was a lot of fun. Uh, I wondered if you have any kind of uh, upcoming projects that people might be excited about. Um, things that you're doing for Watsi or things that you might be, you know, something. Because I, I, now that I know you're a science fiction guy, I want a campaign uh, to get you to illustrate. Because um, they, they, the Expanse released like a very minimalist role-playing game. Uh, and it had... Uh, it has about, it's only about 16 pages. It's like kind of a proof of concept that I think if the expanse takes off, like I think it will, it, it's crying out for a redo and the art's kind of, you know, okay. I, now that I know you're a science fiction yeah. guy. I want to see you, I want to see your take on the expanse universe. Are, are do you watch the expanse? No, I, I haven't started yet. I mean, I definitely, I know it's, you know, I mean, it's on my list. I know it's, 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 kind of amazing right yeah i mean it's it's uh it starts off kind of slow uh in in the almost exact same way that game of thrones does it's like who the hell are all these characters how are they related but like by the fourth episode it's like jet like in fact i think the fourth episode of season one is kind of universally said is like this is where everything kind of clicks and they have their first big kind of space battle i yeah i just i would love to see your take on that universe i think you, it would fit you like hand in glove so if i if i have any pull in geekdom at all, yeah. <laughs> I'm going. I'm going to try. I'm going to try to make that happen. But do you do you have all any right. actual project that people could be excited about? Um, I mean, right now it's mostly just like magic and Dota is what I've been working on mm. the past few months. You know, uh, I do have probably in the next set because you know when sets come out, the artwork is a, like almost a year old at that point. Right. Uh, the set coming out now has maybe one of my favorite illustrations that I've done. Can, can you talk uh, about it, or so, is it, like, all under, no, under wraps? Really. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd get in trouble. What? But it's just it's just a cool pic- image, you know, so I'm excited for that to, like, be public. But, yeah, that, that's all I can really do. Can you talk about what block, what's the name of the block that's, that it's, that's going to be? It's the, it's the second ravnica ah okay um, well i'll definitely check out that plus it's really cool like one of the things i did um like in the early stages of our as i went to there's a like a magic the gathering online art search where you can like it's, it's it's like a codex or something where you can see every card ever created and one of the filters you can do is by artist and you can like go and like see like everything that chase has done um and or you can go to his uh, website, which I chasestoneart.com, which I am including a link to in the show notes. Uh, I highly encourage if you're a fan of fantasy art or just just really done, well done, uh, just artwork. It's it's definitely worth checking out because you have got a lot of talent and you've practiced and worked hard, and it really shows. Uh, thank you. Uh, so I think I, that's, that's all I got. Uh, I really appreciate you taking this cause I know you don't do a lot of like interviews and publicity. So I appreciate you coming on to the show and, uh, uh, be willing to answer some questions. And I just, I just tickled to death to work with you. I can't wait to see all the finalized stuff for volume two that's coming out this spring and can't wait to see that, uh, new Ravnica block. Uh, if it's, if it's one of your favorites, I'm sure it's going to be awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah, Ravnica Allegiance. I just remembered. There you go. So, I'll be uh, be yeah. be be looking for that in the next time I play some uh, booster drafts. Chase Stone, mm-hmm. thank you for coming on our podcast, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right, thanks for having me. You've been listening to quite a few Bald Move podcasts now, but you're not in the club? Whoo boy, you are missing out. Not only are all of our premium club podcast feeds completely ad-free, but we have lots of other great content exclusively for people in the club. There's a weekly lunch with Jim and Aaron where we chat with fans about anything and everything from TV and films, food, fun, life advice, and more. But there's also Off the Clock, our premium podcast where we talk about all the shows we don't have time for on our public feeds. Plus, you get access to our full, spoiler-filled, first-round movie reviews of our newly released films. Don't forget Instant Take and Talk Podcast, where we give our hot takes and discuss television shows with our fans live and immediately after the episode airs. With mega shows like House of the Dragon coming this summer, we're going to have lots to talk about. Not to mention access to our fun and friendly community of club members, with exclusive Discord channels and a dedicated forum. It's one of the best places on the internet to hang out and chat about pop culture. Bottom line, you're helping two regular type guys in the Midwest make the content you like to listen to, which some would say is reward unto itself. Help keep the lights on and the bits flowing at Bald Move. And get some awesome content for yourself. Head to support.baldmove.com to join the club today. try to make it super easy to support making podcasts at bald move just join the club but some people aren't a joining type or maybe they're already in the club but want to add a little bit of gratuity for an especially great season of coverage or for podcasts that really spoke to them or gave them that bit of support in a tough time for these and for whatever other reason you might have our tip jar is always open head over to support.baldmove.com and click the donate option to say hey keep doing what you're doing we appreciate it Once again, check out support.baldmove.com for all the great ways to help me and Jim keep making the podcast you love. Since the dawn of time, we've been putting clothes on our back that identify us with our people, our group, our tribe. And why Bald Move might be one of the smallest, weirdest tribes out there, transcending all concepts of border, class, culture, and creed. We still have respect for the old ways. At support.baldmove.com, you can get t-shirts, hats, mugs, and more. We have something for every one of our podcasts, or just wear the four pips of the Bald Move logo with pride. Bald Move merch beats running around naked, and they make a great gift for the Bald Move fan in your life. Join our tribe! Head over to support.baldmove.com and click on merch to start shopping. Wow, Anthony, we haven't recorded them yet, but those interviews sounded amazing. I can't believe how insightful that our buddies Kim and Chase were. Can you? I am I am anticipating being thrilled by these interviews. <laughs> um, so we have a little bit of feedback. Actually, we have a lot of feedback. We had uh, for, by standards of these uh these these book pad uh these book podcasts. So I want to get to that. 
Uh, Game of Thrones at baldmove.com is where you send in feedback, where you can discuss it on our uh, forums, forums.baldmove.com. Uh, just a reminder, this is our last kind of official piece of coverage until more towards the spring. We will have a kind of a bonus podcast where Anthony and I are just going to talk about religion coming out in the next uh, few weeks. Um, and that's, you know, it'll probably be loosely tied to Game of Thrones because most of our conversations kind of are. Yeah, kind of more, more contemporary religions and our, our personal yeah. relationships to these things. Yeah, if that sounds entertaining, great. If not, uh, it won't hurt my feelings. If uh, if you don't you don't want to hear, uh, you will hurt my feelings, but it's okay. I, I you you won't see my tears. <laughs> I I hold them in. All right. He'll, by the time he comes back uh, in the spring to talk about volume two of uh, Gods of Thrones, he he will have dried his eyes. <laughs> so I want to get started with uh, Mario P who has a question that I can't believe hasn't come up on the podcast yet, because I know it's like one of the things that immediately came up with the AMA we did on Reddit. Uh, within the show, we see magic being used by different practitioners, but how is magic inherent to the metaphysics of the show? In other words, is magic like the Force in Star Wars, where anyone who has a knowledge and capability is able to wield it, with only their motivations determining whether it's good or evil, or is magic a tool or will used by a sentient and eternal being like a god? Essentially, is magic an extension of the will of a god, or does supernatural magic originate from a supernatural god? Or could it be that the various religions have appropriated magic, ritualized it, and made it sacred, the cornerstone of their religion that establishes that religion's authenticity? Much in the same way Paul and the early Christians appropriated Jesus, according to the doctor of theology, Brett Ehrman and Gerd Ludeman. So I'm not familiar with those gentlemen. No, um, you're not? No, uh-uh. All right. Okay, keep going. Uh, says I, he, he wraps up, I use Game of Thrones and Westworld as an artifact of study when I teach philosophy and ethics at my college, and these questions are what cause the greatest debates within my classroom. I'd appreciate if you and Anthony would do a deep dive in his grand metaphysical question. So a fellow fellow scholar uh, and and teacher and molder of minds ask, asking for help on this one. Yeah. Um, what 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 do you what do you think? What is what's the deal with magic and gods on well, Game of Thrones? Are they real? What's 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 up? Yeah, it's it's a good it's a good question and one I don't think that Martin really wants to answer. Um, mm. we'll, we'll we will see. I think he wants to sort of leave it to. Uh, you and I, Aaron, he wants to leave it to us to, to write the <laughs> definitive take on religions in, in Game of Thrones. Uh, but there are two things to consider. One is that the magic is either infused in the seasons and weather. In other words, it's just part of the setting. Uh, so Martin has said that the season, the, 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 the irregularity of the se- seasons is actually... Uh, some sort of has some sort of magical impetus, um, so it's just sort of ba- it's baked into the setting of the story, and so it is as part of the world as the weather would be, um, and so we hear winter is coming, and we also know that that means that the White Walkers are coming, and yada yada yada. Um, so that's part of it. So there's some sort of cosmic force, a la Star Wars. The other way to look at it. Which was alluded to in in the in the email was that um, based on this sort of cosmic reality, different people have it interpreted in different ways and ritualized it in different ways. And so, someone like Melisandre will come along with a fully developed religion based around 
some sort of supernatural reality, but the religion itself is just an interpretation of the reality and not sort of the definitive explanation of it. So, th- so R'hllor, mm-hmm. R'hllor, there's no R'hllor, in other words. Uh, that would be one way to look at it. What do you think? So there is some kind of fire element that may or may not have a a consciousness and a, a point of view, but it could be just an elemental force, and they're just slapping the word R'hllor on it to describe all these things and coming up with rituals to try to to harness those that power. Right, and I think Mushroom has this line in the book where he says, well, the regents were selected by the gods, but turns out the gods aren't very smart anyway. Uh, yeah. And I wonder if there isn't something there, even if it's sort of said as a jape, I wonder if, it's, if there's something there like, look, you, you're not going to be able to find some sort of personal god that's going to answer your prayers. There's some sort of cosmic force out there, but don't trust in anyone that, that claims to have sort of a, a good handle on how it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I also think there's another possibility that we haven't mentioned, and I think it's most uh, it, it's most most possible when you're talking about the gods of the north, the old gods, which is the god like so. You've got these 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 ancient tree worshiping entities, the children of the forest. They then convert the men, and we know that these these people that are very strong green seers eventually their fate is to merge their consciousness with the weirwoods. Uh, and they, right. they, they live on, okay? And when, you know, like when, when Bran sees this cave beneath the weirwood tree that the, the three-eyed raven has made his home, the three-eyed raven at this point is over over 100 years old, and he's kind of like this desiccated corpse that has tree roots growing through it, and there's right. a hall of like these old singers that has like, you know, all these bones and of, of like the people that have come before him. Right. And you get the idea that it's entirely possible that the Northern gods are just these legions of old green seers and tree singers that right. have melged in like a very um, uh, avatar uh, Navu type culture. Right. That, so that, the that they've all gone to the trees. Right. The con- according to Jojen and, uh, and uh, Snowy Locks up north, they're the, the eventually these green seers sort of upload their consciousness into Skynet and uh, mm-hmm. or not Skynet but like Earthnet, TreeNet, mm-hmm. and Weirwood.net. Uh, eventually, <laughs> yeah, and eventually they merge with the old gods, thus becoming something like the old gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe becoming an old god. In 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 in, in volume two, we talk about this. You know, maybe Bran is on his way to becoming a god in that sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I thought that's interesting that you could have so you, so maybe the world started as an elemental force that that you know that that humans and these children could could perceive and then manipulate, and as they got stronger at it, they were able to transcend the bonds of death and eventually become the gods that they've always worshipped. Um, out of out of like some kind of ignorance or ritual. That's right. So, like in dance, we we learn that second life is a big thing for for wargs mm. or or green right. seers. So, if mm. you can, you know, you're about to die, and then you project your soul or whatever consciousness 
into a bird or a wolf or something like that, you can get yourself a second life. But Mm -hmm. let's imagine that you are able to project your second life into a weirwood tree that lives forever. Which... That's because that's that's one of the things that um, I did not know. I mean, it's pointed out in the margins, but weirwood trees in are, are one of those creatures uh, that, unless they're disturbed, they'll just live forever. Uh, and their 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 wood once cut does not rot, which is you know obviously a huge boon for a medieval society. So yeah, so those are just a few ideas, and like I said, I'm not sure that Martin really wants to answer those questions, but I think he wants us to be asking those questions. Yeah, because in he, he, I don't, I'm not sure whether he wants to or answer. I will say that he has at this point. You can say that their magic is for certain real, but is there personal gods that you can that will intercede in your behalf? That's the question to me that's that's interesting, and I think that's the one that he has so far refused to, to answer. And until we actually, I mean, but the other thing is, like as we point out in our book, a book is like it's you could easily describe dragons as gods. You could easily describe the White Walkers as gods. Yeah, in the so, sense, yeah, if you took like a, a Norse mythology sense or an Egyptian mythology sense, right. they they are functioning in the story as gods. They're not gods in the Judeo Christian sense. Right, they're not like omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient right. kind of gods. But so until until that kind of god steps forward, like you could already argue that humans are already communing with what you know, like you said, Norse culture, and to the extent that uh, the the north the northern religion is based on you know uh, shamanism and Norse mythology and uh, Celtic traditions of of tree worship and and druid traditions, then. That you we might we might already have met all the gods that this universe is is going going to offer. They're just not super impressive from a <laughs> or they're dormant. Kind of standpoint. You know, they, you know, there's mm-hmm. Brand is not at the height of his powers yet, and right, Danny's right. not. You know, maybe Danny is not at the height of her powers yet, at least in the books. But of but once these two are, they're pretty. They're pretty far above the, the the realities of mortals at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's move on to Evan W. It says, I'm waiting to see what Santa has in store for me before pulling the trigger on the book, but it's on my radar. Hey, I, I, I it, it sucks because I'm the type of guy that if I want something, I go out and buy it, but I intentionally black out like from the, from the time of my birthday in August until the end of December because like, oh, I don't want to step on someone's gift idea, right? Like, I get it. I get it. I, do you think that we're going to see a corresponding surge in book sales on December 26th as legions I'm, I'm looking, are disappointed? I'm looking into my crystal ball, and the answer is yes. Millions yes, of copies. Uh, legions of of disaffected game of thrones and bald move fans whose families did not get the copious hints that this is what they wanted and <laughs> they didn't have their stocking stuff so their trees fortified by the gift of gods or they got uh, an amazon gift card uh, for someone who couldn't Ooh. come up with a better job and they they, they they used it to great effect there you go uh well, let's get back to evan uh in the last episode, you guys discussed how dragons refused to fly north of the wall. Based on the quote from the book that I read, I agree. It seems that Gurm intentionally wants the readers to notice that. But the Double Ds just had Danny fly north of the wall with a squadron of dragons. How should we square that circle? That would seem to me 
Uh, too large of a plot point for the double Ds to make up completely. Any speculation on why Danny's dragons overcame their fear of the wall? Boy, I mean, there. It, this is unknowable right now because that seem. I've. I. I think that the double Ds and George Martin are in a little bit of a snit with each other, <laughs> and yeah. And I think the double D's are like, oh, these are your bullet points, old man. Well, fuck your bullet points. Um, and and I because I, I don't think there's any way to square that. Now, maybe, maybe there is some kind of confluence that will allow the Ice King to, to steal a dragon. Because that's pretty fucking cool, honestly. But it's yeah. going to be a way more convoluted magic and plot involving horns and blowing and walls shattering and <laughs> and yeah. oaths being sworn and broken and betrayals and treachery it's not going to be just hey how about we go up and get an ice zombie and capture it so we can just rub it in cersei's face oh no we lost a dragon um because i yeah i, I don't think there is a way to square that without just well, a lot of work but the other way i mean if we're gonna go this direction the other way to look at it is to say Martin saw the last season, thought, oh, these guys are idiots. I'm actually going <laughs> to write a chapter in this upcoming book that makes it impossible for dragons to fly right. north. Just to show them, yeah. Oh, here's one other opera. I, I've thought about this, too. There's also one other idea that you can fly a dragon north of the wall, but they'll only obey the, the, the call of Azora High. Or the prince that was promised. Ah, well, and okay. since we think Danny is at least half of that figurehead, if if not the whole enchilada, then maybe that's why the dragons are like, "Sure, boss, whatever." We're getting information. We will um, wait and see. We will wait and see. Uh, we might be waiting a long time if, <laughs> if we're talking about Winds of Winter and Dream of Spring. VH. Uh, for your information, on your last podcast on Fire and Blood, you guys mentioned that you were unaware of a historical analog for mushroom. Goddamn fucking mushroom! Holy cow! I got. I'm. I'm. I. If I never see another mushroom in my life, I'll, <laughs> it'll. It'll be too soon. I was actually reminded of a somewhat famous historian named Pro, Procopius. I think is how you pronounce that. Who chronicled the history of the Byzantine or Eastern Roman. Uh, Emperor Ju- Justinian the First, who reconquered much of the Western Roman Empire in the sixth century, uh, Procopius was, or yeah, Procopius was an insider at the Byzantine court and the chief legal advisor to the emperor's best general. However, after years of service to his emperor, he became very disillusioned with him, in particular his wife, the Empress Theodora. In his work, The Secret History, it gets pretty insulting towards the emperor, and at times even pornographic. Here's a passage from Wikipedia regarding the empress's late night shows as an actress. I quote, often even in the theater, in sight of all these people, she removed her costume and stood nude in their midst, except for a girdle about the groin. Not that she was abashed at revealing that, too, to the audience, but because there was a law against appearing altogether naked on the stage, without at least this much of a fig leaf. Covered thus with a ribbon, she would sink down to the stage floor and recline on her back. Slaves to whom the duty was entrusted would then scatter grains of barley from above the... Calyx of this passion flower, whence geese trained for the purpose would next pick the grains one by one of their bills and eat. <laughs> uh, hey, that's a great catch. I, I I am not up on my Byzantine history uh, and and wasn't aware of this particular historian. So thank you. Are we sure these geese aren't just actually Zeus trying to get one last uh, trans species <laughs> poke before he shuffles off into the dustbin of discarded gods and 
<laughs> you know, he, he felt the Christ, the Christ breathing down his neck, and he's like, one last time, I want to transform into a bull or a flock of geese, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna eat some cereal off a naked lady. Yeah, that's a ticket. <laughs> um, this from all the relatively, uh, from a relatively well-respected historian who is thought as the most important historian of the early Byzantine Empire. At other points, he also suggests that the emperor is possessed by a demon, and Theodora is possibly a sorceress. Uh, Procopius didn't realize the secret or didn't release the secret history during his own lifetime. It was discovered after his death. Well, there's a red flag. It may not be as lewd or outright sexual as mushroom, but the parallel of Royal insider leaking out the real happenings behind the scenes is there. I, I'm, I'm very pleased to, to, uh, be corrected on this record. Cause this sounds, yeah, me too. this sounds pretty amazing. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, moving on to Jasmine, I'm on the last third of Fire and Blood trying to finish before you do your last podcast, and I'm on the chapter under the regents, War and Peace and Cattle Shows. Lord Unwin Peak is emptying the dungeons and metting out punishment for thieves, murderers, etc., but it got me wondering, is there an option for women similar to the Night's Watch? If they were found guilty of a crime, did they just have to take the punishment? Maybe they could join the Silent Sisters. It seems rather that unfair that men could keep their limbs and whatever else so long as they headed to the wall. But then again, a lot of things for women are unfair in Gurm's world, so maybe there is no answer. Um, yeah, it's it's my yeah. understanding that the Silent Sisters are kind of um, that little outlet for, for, for women. At least for high-born women. I think that there are a couple examples in this book where, you know, if you're if the, if if a highborn daughter is, we don't know what else to do with her. That right. we'll try to send her to the Silent Sisters. Um, so so at least for some of that, there's also this. Um, unfortunately, this is a historical detail. It's the uh, the law of gallows and pits. Does this ring a bell for you, Aaron? I have heard it mentioned because I just got done listening to this seven-hour podcast by Dan Carlin on uh, essentially public executions right. from like antiquity to current day. Right, and in some of that, I think that they talked about that. There's like there's actually right. so this it's is the like a right, penal code. Yeah, it's the right of a lord to decide uh, who's going to be executed. And for the men, they get the gallows, and for the women, they get drowned, which is, of course, probably where we get the whole drowning of witches um, mm-hmm. tradition. Uh, so it sounds like capital punishment was used often. Uh, mm-hmm. In our real world history, there was no such thing as the wall. Um you know, the there was a Hadrian's Wall, but that was manned by Roman soldiers. It was not manned by otherwise uh, disenfranchised members of the realm. I and I, I also think the Silent Sisters is not like that wasn't as automatic to the extent that taking a black was was automatic. I think it was like um, something that the Lord could decide to do out of mercy, or it's something that the woman could ask for. But it's not like it is in the Baratheon period where you can essentially take the black to get out of any kind of jail free. You know what? That now that I say that, I want to do a quick caveat here because I, I lived in Durham, England for a while while I finished my dissertation, there was, during the medieval period, a time where if you could get to the front door of Durham Cathedral, no matter what your offense offense was, mm. and you could reach the knocker, like the, the knocker on top of the door, 
and and the uh, the priests uh, would or would let you in, you would have at least thirty or sixty days reprieve from execution, and you could sort of get your your matters in order. And it was respected by almost all of the lords and ladies that that if you could get to Durham Cathedral, which would be in the north of England. Mm-hmm. Um, then you would have some kind of reprieve, even if it's sort of a temporary stay of ex- execution. Just, just so you can get your your will and your affairs and, and all or that. That's hire a good lawyer. I don't know. <laughs> that's true. That's true. There's also a lot of weird stuff because, like, I I've, I read a quite a bit of historical fiction, and one of my favorites is Patrick O'Brien. And there's a whole plot point where the hero of the story is uh subject for arrest for debts because you know the whole debtor prison that's right. that's a great idea guy can't pay his debts throw him in jail till he can um yeah. but the, apparently there was these all these little tiny squares of london that because of ancient things going back to the time of like the first magna carta that the the whatever prince or baron or duke still had sovereignty and none of the crown's debts could be collected on those lands. So a lot of the the you know skips on their debts would would rent an apartment in these these liberties. Huh. Um, that's interesting. And and then then the the bailiffs couldn't go and uh, and and get them. So right. right. Crazy. Crazy. Uh, let's move on to Eric S. I've noticed that the show and the books place attention to the fact that Joffrey and his siblings have blonde hair as evidence that they're not Baratheons. And Gendry, in turn, is the image, spinning image of Robert. In fact, the author and the showrunners go to great lengths to demonstrate through physical descriptions that families tend to have common traits. This leads me to wonder, why is it a common belief in Planetos that Oris Baratheon was a half-brother to Aegon Targaryen? Shouldn't there be some kind of Targaryen trait in the Baratheons that would confirm their lineage? If Aegon's father was Oris's father... Uh, Oris could have should have some Targaryen features. Instead, the Baratheon's description is completely opposite that of the Targaryens. So I ask: Could this mean Oris Baratheon is not a Targaryen bastard, or could they be half brothers, half brothers through their mother? Well, I mean, Fire and Blood pretty much settles this and just outright says that you know Oris is the half brother on his father's side. Well, no, does it actually say on his father's side? I thought it did. I forget, but, but he but he is connected to the, to the uh, Targaryens, even even if uh, baseborn. Yeah, and that's like, and and I, I there, there's there's a lot of people trying to kind of figure how this fits in because I, I read a thread on um, the the Song of Ice and Fire Reddit where people were saying when. Uh, John Aaron's talking about the seed being strong. He's not talking about. Robert Baratheon in general, he's talking about the Baratheons. Like if you look all throughout like this, this Baratheon trait of these, these Mm. bristly beard, curly black hair, physically imposing gentlemen goes back to the dawn of their house some 300 years ago. So, and again and again, every time a Baratheon points, uh, every time Baratheon uh, pops up in the story, they're all Bobby B types. So now this is I have long maintained that this is the stupidest fucking thing in Game of Thrones, period. <laughs> this just pun it squares, what are those? The seed is strong, horror, horror. Like 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 give this simple minded medieval mystery to to Ned so he can figure it out and the seed is strong. That's the thing. Like it 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 it's I, I can't see it as anything other than really fucking stupid. But it could be magic. It, 
It's maybe the laws of genetics are governed by magic, just like just like the the orbital mechanics of their planets and on planetos. So here's how I take this: Martin was using this as a literary device so that Ned would eventually mm. learn that uh, Cersei and Jamie were doing the Tower of Joy dance. That is the that is the full extent to the purpose of the seed is strong. I don't know if you can parlay that fact into a larger sort of in-world reality that, that, that Martin wants to develop. I just think it was specifically to create a conflict in a Game of Thrones. I don't know if it tells us anything else about the way genetics works on Planetus. Hmm. That's my take. Uh, okay. I still think... It's the stupidest thing that that happened in the, <laughs> okay. the, the, the books of Game of Thrones, anyway. Hot take by Aaron. Um, Hot take. <laughs> Russell W. So this is the uh, the the Norse heathen that uh, introduced himself so many weeks ago. Says while we're on the topic of fire and blood, book the gods of uh, thrones and the new trailer that has dropped for season eight with the wall of ice, meaning wall and fire. I think it's very relevant, given my heathen ways and the conver- my, the conversion or conversation on religion in Westeros to touch on a few things. So if you haven't seen it yet, HBO dropped a teaser trailer. It's less than a minute long. And it's essentially the painted table, uh, the famous painted table of Aegon the, Car- the Targaryen. It's carved in the shape of Westworld and and painted to look like uh, Westworld? Not Westworld, Westeros. Yeah, yeah, we got uh, we got Thrones World coming coming to season three of uh, of uh, Westworld. They're cashing in, baby. I always thought Aegon but, the first was a, was an android. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it explains his his stern and kind of boring demeanor, honestly. Yeah. Um. So if you haven't seen it, it's essentially one side of the table is freezing, and like you can see, like you know, they have all those like little chess pieces and the shapes of lions and wolves and and Kraken and whatnot, and they're slowly icing over and, and being consumed by the frost. And then from the opposite side of the table, like, uh, it's it's lit on fire, like it's being flambéed, and you see the flames devouring lions, and they come to the middle and just explode into this, like, kind of wall formation. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's, that's the trailer he's referring to here. It goes, the, the title of the story, A Song of Ice and Fire, and the theme of Ice and Fire is a constant threat story, as one might expect. But this, it seems, is inspired by, if not taken directly from Norse mythology. Now, Anthony, you have not actually been exposed to this email yet, but I can't wait to get your reaction. Uh, a creation of the cosmos starts with the uh, Ginungagap, a void, a bottomless ab- abyss. Then, to the north of the void, spawn... Nif- Niflheim, an icy, cold, and dark place, and then to the mm-hmm. south of the void came Musfulheim, the land of fire. Now, I might be, but he he gave me a helpful pronunciation guide for Gun and Get Gap, but none of these others. So, uh, the land of fire, sparks of lava. That's where Suter, the fire giant, lives with a flaming sword in hand. A very brief rundown: the streams of water that flowed from Nilfheim and the sparks and fire from Musfulheim met in the void, creating the perfect conditions for life. Game of Thrones plays on the idea of these opposites with fire and ice, and there are many comparisons that one can draw between the two that I'll leave for the sake of discussion, but the symbolism of ice in the north and the fire in the south of the wall in the middle is significant. Even in Ragnarok, the end of all things has a place of Game of Thrones, or in Game of Thrones. Before the gods are defeated, there's a long winter, three consecutive winters, where the said brother will fight brother, wars will rage and famine will take hold, disease will plague the land, all before the forces of ice and fire face off against the gods of which the apocalypse will erupt afterwards under the branches 
of Idrisil, Life is Reborn. Uh, in Ragnarok, the majority of the gods all die, having known their fates beforehand. They rode forth in the battle anyway. Some of them, however, survive and are at their end uh, to start anew. Also an interesting note in the Norse creation myth, uh, Ymir, Ymir, the giant, is slain, and from his bones, teeth, hair, brain, and skull, our worlds are created. Sounds a lot like living inside the blue-eyed giant called Macumber, uh, which is a Game of Thrones Game of Thrones lore. This is pretty cool. Because this is essentially a synopsis of one of the chapters in, in Volume 1 of Gods of, uh, Gods of Thrones. Right. So it sounds like maybe um, our friend – what's his name? Uh, Russell. Russell. Sounds like maybe our friend Russell has not, has not gotten to the Frost Giants, uh, Crueler Gods chapter in our book. And mm-hmm. has arrived at some of the same conclusions we arrived at in parallel. Uh, so we're happy to meet you in the middle, Russell. But I think I, I think he's right. But, but right? when we do, we'll explode into fire and ice, and <laughs> and right. that's what happens. That's what happens. Yeah, I call fire. So um, I <laughs> so I think he's right. I think that there is something about the the White Walkers that parallels the Frost Giants. I think that there's something about the mythology of uh, Macumber that sort of hints at the the, the body of of humor, and I think and this is something that that we started talking about really early on in the process of writing this book. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I was I was able to kind of uh, craft this with Aaron's help, but I th- one of my theories is that um, that the wall. Although it does sort of echo Hadrian's wall, I think we actually do have an idea that is drawn from Norse mythology that there is basically a wall that's keeping out the giants beyond the edge of the world. That's a very and, – and the wall is made of Ymir's eyelashes. So I, I, mm. I think that maybe Martin is, is nodding in this direction. I don't know if it's going to sort of say, okay, well, now we can, now we can sort of project how the, the story is going to end um, mm-hmm. in the same way that Norse mythology ends. I think this is one more ancient mythology that, that, uh, that Martin has co-opted and put in service to an original narrative. That, that would be my take on it. Let's move on to Steve S. So now that I'm done with the book, and I think he's referring to Fire and Blood here, uh, I can say that I'm unsurprisingly happy that I read it, yet underwhelmed at the content provided for, for overall world building. I was really expecting a few more explicit connections to the Targaryen reign and the Game of Thrones storyline that we all know and love. Anyone else a little surprised the book ended about halfway th- between Aegon's the first conquering Westeros and Bobby B sitting Iron Throne? I, I'm not surprised because I actually think a lot of the stuff that we're expecting to get is going to be in the next volume. Uh, because the Blackfire Rebellion sets up so many of the situations and the characters that that we are still dealing with in in Game of Thrones. Like, mm. if nothing else, like that's that's the origin of uh, Brendan Rivers, the the three eyed the three eyed crow, three eyed raven. Right, and you've got all these like all these plots in Game of Thrones that you know it's like, oh, is this. Uh, this Aegon that that John Connington is is warding is he actually a Blackfire rebel? Is how is Illyrio and and Varys, sure. um, you know, related to all this? Like I, I think that's going to be coming in volume two. 
But uh, he has a couple of thoughts about the book he wants to discuss. Who can actually afford a faceless man? There sure seems to be a disparity between the cost in the show and in the books. Uh, hashtag even the thin man was gettable. Uh, I mean, I think it's a it's a thing that anyone can afford a faceless man. It's just the cost is always going to be dear and higher than you want to pay. So it's maybe like on a sliding scale. Like, okay, so I, I see that you're, you know, your entire net worth is one golden dragon. So we're mm-hmm. going to take half of that. Or we're going to take your daughter. <laughs> <laughs> or some, you know, like so, something. Yeah, like it's 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 going to be it's going to be steep. It's going to make you whistle and pucker and think, oh boy, I don't know if I can afford that. No matter if you're a king or a pauper, or maybe there's no rhyme or reason to it at all. It, maybe they just do it as a joke. They, they, they throw joke. some dice and they're like, oh, it looks it looks like you got off uh, free. We're going to kill everyone you want us to kill for free. Yeah. So you know we haven't offered many to the re- to to the to the god of death lately. They might the god of death might be getting restless. Let's have a sale. Let's, I let's wonder if they do for- like a Black Friday sale for the faceless men. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> it's the it'd be a black and white Friday to right. to represent their doors. Ah, there you go. There you go. Um Egg on the Third's reign, continuing with Steve's points, was a weird one to me. I can't peg what his affliction is. He's not mad, lusty, a learned man. He doesn't really like anything and was often described in a way that would make you think he was simple, but that just doesn't seem to fit. Thoughts on him? Um, I think he's just a very traumatized individual. Yeah. Well, or look, he, 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 was, he, what, he saw his mother eaten by... Is, is he the guy that saw his mother eaten by a dragon? Yeah, and then he, yeah, yeah, you know, he, he, then he, then he tries to exert. Oh, and he's married off to his eight-year-old cousin or something like that. And, and then and he's, he's lived lived under the shadow of war his entire life and under threat constantly. Yeah, and then he tries to exert some influence, and he gets basically spanked. So I, I mean, this is not look. Th- these Targaryens are not the. Th- this is not sort of the example of a healthy family unit in general. <laughs> Um, no. but <laughs> yeah, it's poor, he's a poor kid. He had no chance. Yeah. Um, there sure is a lot more Valerian steel in Westeros than I thought pre game of Thrones. Where are these blades now? Such treasure items wouldn't be lost to history in this short span of time. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's been some people that tried to track down like all the Valerian blades we know about, but I mean, I, I never thought they were as, as, as scarce as, as they're laying on. And I also, it slightly strains my credibility that Tywin Lannister couldn't get himself a Valerian blade, you know, right. with all the minor houses that have them and the amount of gold that he was able to give. Like, there is a little really? bit of a nod that some of these blades, you know, the, the, we got a lot of people, you know, sort of uh, traveling the world mm-hmm. and not coming back. So maybe they, they're they're lost right. to the bottom of the ocean or whatever. Um, well, we, we know that's how Bright Rourke, that's how the Lannisters lost their blades. Um, right. Was it Garion, the, the, the bold or whatever, went forth to, to colonize old Valeria, and he never came back, and he, he, he brought their Valerian blade with them. So. Right. We do get to meet Ice for the first time. Cregan Stark uh, brings ice. It's, it's mentioned that he was going to use ice for the uh, execution. But you know, these are little yeah. like like the the previous email said. You know, some people really love those kind of Easter eggs, and some people roll their eyes at them. And so you're you know you're always sort of risking something when when you drop like something that like that in a prequel. Uh, finally, Mushroom was sort of given a final word in this book. I think there's something there that we should be connecting to Tyrion. 
I never, th- I didn't think that, but that's kind of interesting. If it, if if it is, I'm not sure what it is. I mean, there was that one quote about the gods, which is some, somewhat similar to what Tyrion says while he's waiting his execution in King's Landing in the in the cells to Jamie. Um, that the gods are some somewhat parallel to cousin Orson. Um, and he is a little person and he is somewhat, uh, irreverent. Um, mm-hmm. eh, maybe he's a, he's a type. He's, he's a type. I don't know. I don't know beyond that what I'm supposed to draw from those parallels. I think that, yeah, cause that's, I, I do like with some of the, some of the lurid details mushroom gave in, it gave us here. It reminded me a lot of, uh, Tyrion's false confession in the veil. In front of Lysa Aaron, that you know he confessed to making the bald man cry and to milking his his eel into someone's fish stew and like all this, it's all this other this just ribald bullshit. Uh, I think that him and Mushroom would be good drinking buddies, or they'd hate each other because they're too alike. Or they'd hate, yeah, they'd hate each other as because all Mushroom would see is the amount of privilege that Tyrion has, and all all uh, Tyrion can see is this guy's squandering. Who knows? <laughs> um, that's the last point for Steve. Let's move on to Mark H. Gentlemen, first wanted to thank you for your coverage on Fire and Blood. It's keeping me plugged into the show while I wait until April, and Gods of Thrones was so good, I made sure to go and leave a review. Well, thanks, Mark. I appreciate that. Anyway, I want to talk about Fire and Blood from the point of view of someone who has had to read for his job. I'm a middle school librarian, which means I end up reading a lot of young adult titles. Oh, boy. I tend to have somewhat You know what? That sounds like a fantastic job. That sounds I love that job. <laughs> they they tend to be somewhat predictable in nature and sometimes I catch my brain shutting down and not really paying attention to certain passages usually because they don't pertain all that much to the plot. I'll still be able to walk a student through the major plot points, but sometimes I'm not all the way plugged in. Uh, I found the same thing happening as I read Fire and Blood, and that never happens to me when I'm reading anything meant for an adult audience. While I can say that I don't feel like it was time wasted, there's definitely some interesting stuff in there. I'm not sure that telling this story required 700 pages. Uh, I think Anthony nailed it when he said that 10 pages go by with nothing and then the 11th would be great. However, that's a pretty low percentage of goodness. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, you're you're not wrong, and I'm also wondering if this book being split into two was more about George really wanting a little extra time with the Blackfire Rebellion because he knows that that really connects a lot of stuff with, the, and he wanted to get that just right. Mm-hmm. And it'd be hilarious if we end up waiting five years for Volume Two. <laughs> I uh, think as someone because he's who, paralyzed, right? He's paralyzed with which 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 bastard should lay with Sierra She Star to make I don't know whatever. whatever well, as someone who reads, as someone who reads ancient history for my job, <clears throat> I can tell <laughs> you that that's a lot like this book is a lot like reading someone like Josephus, where you you do read mm-hmm. ten ten pages of the Jewish War, and you're thinking, man, this is this is really dull. And you get to that eleventh page, and you're thinking, "Oh wow, that that's that's fascinating. I didn't know that, and that connects to this, this, and this." And it could be that that's what Martin's going for. He wants this to read like a medieval history or an ancient history. Um, and let me just reiterate again: I would love to be a junior fiction librarian. If anyone knows of a job, I will take it. I, that sounds like my dream job. 
You might be careful with what you wish for, because I can totally see how... Because the stuff he's talking about, his eyes crossing and skipping, I'm like, I'm thinking... Because, you know, I read The Hunger Games, and, you know, after Katniss Everdeen tries her 30th dress on uh, for the different pageantry of The Hunger Games, I'm like, okay, this this part of the book isn't for me. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know. Yeah, like everything... um, My, my My view on junior fiction is that... Good fiction is not uh, is not age specific. That if it's mm-hmm. good junior fiction, that just makes it good fiction, and everyone will enjoy it, no matter what their age. Yeah, no, I I I I, I can get behind that. Last up, Taylor H. I am a longtime show lover and really enjoyed this podcast. I've began recently listening to the books on audiobook, and I have a question about the Hound. Why do you think that the Hound has an affinity for the Stark girls? I just finished Clash of Kings, and there was multiple times where the Hound genuinely cared for Sansa uh, in a fucked up kind of Hound sort of way and showed her (laughs) kindness. Then I know later in the show, at least, the Hound takes Arya on the roadshow and cares and protects for her for about a year. What was about these two girls that softened his heart? I have been thinking about it, and I'm not sure what it is about them that made them act this way. Would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, I think i i i don't know because i'm not privy privy to the 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 hound's internal thoughts but it seems like on for sansa's part that he was kind of genuinely touched by how naively she believed in knights and honor and then you know him her being just just wretchedly treated by the court by these people that she looked up to and revered uh i think struck a chord similar to his experience you know being victimized by his brother who was a anointed knight um and it's like you know he he He's a, he's a victim, the one to spare another person, someone that's maybe more innocent and, and still had some a, ch- a chance for re- to, to get out of there and lead a normal life. Um, some people see it like a romantic kind of thing between him and Sansa. I don't, I, n- I never got that. I think it's more of like, uh, I don't think there's a weird dynamic where, where Sansa's terrified of him, but also piteous. Well, he tries to ter- terrorize her. I mean, he'll say things right. specifically to scandalize her or, or or scare the shit out of her. And I mm-hmm. think that, I mean, look, the Hound's a complicated character, but at the end of the day, I think Martin sort of has him as sort of a scoundrel with the heart of gold, which is totally against Sansa's view of what a perfect man looks like. You know, mm-hmm. she, she's got a very superficial sense of sort of a, a knight in shining armor, and mm-hmm. it turns out that her knight in shining armor has half of his face burnt off and you mm-hmm. know like likes to like his to armor's scare not that shiny anyway <laughs> and i should also point out that you know i don't know if he has any great affection for arya first off i think he kidnaps her cuz there's something to be gained monetarily and yeah. he, she eventually grows on him i think but uh, we we shouldn't he's not quite as developed as a character at that point in the story i don't think so there is our thoughts on one of the chief skeptics, uh, the Hound, who gets his his own chapter in our book. Well, yeah, I guess more on the Hound in Volume One. In Volume One of of uh, Gods of Thrones, available now at great retailers near you, like Amazon. And if you 
are interested again one 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 final plug on this podcast gods of thrones is available in paperback and ebook you can go on amazon and get it there is convenient links right here in the show notes that you are listening to uh, if, uh most podcast apps display that but you can also find them on uh, any of the show the articles for these podcasts on baldmove.com or if you just search for gods of thrones on, Bal- uh, on amazon boom there you go uh that is it for this week's show Thanks to our guests, uh, Kim Renfro and Chase Stone, for taking time out of their busy schedules to chat with us about Fire and Blood and and their experiences uh, with that and and Gods of Thrones. And last but certainly not least, thanks, Anthony, for joining us on the podcast um, for these last few weeks and sharing with us your your insight and your information and and your wit and humor. Hey, Uh, uh, it's it's, been a pleasure. I've been uh, really excited to get connected to the Bald Move community a little bit better. And, uh, of course, uh, I will not be a stranger in any (laughs) sense of that word. (laughs) I will will not murder you, Aaron, in other words. Yeah, you won't be the the seventh-headed god of death. uh, No, I I promise not to be the seven. Okay, uh, you will not be a, a ill-tempered horse that the hound would ride. That's another stranger in, in the, in the I, no canon. No guarantee on that one. I, I might actually do that one. Uh, so if you're down here, me and Anthony talk about religion. We'll have another podcast out in a bit. If, if this is your final stop, then we wish you well, and we'll see you back here in the spring. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Anthony. See ya. See ya.